This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. I'm always excited to do this show. I mean, this is a, a pretty exciting job. Uh, for everything that goes well with it, everything that goes not so well, this is an exciting job. Most people, uh, they don't get to do a job as exciting as this, to be able to talk with thousands and thousands of people each and every morning. Uh, it's a really a very lucky thing, a very lucky privilege that I have. But uh, today, I'm even more excited because there is so much going on in the world. There's so much going on on this show, and we're going to cover as much ground as we possibly can in the next four hours. Now, um, for starters, for the first time in over a half a century, Congress is holding hearings on UFOs today. Today. This is going to be big. And we're going to talk about it with uh, Jeremy Corbell, who is an investigative filmmaker who's been covering this for a long time. And uh, he's going to join me at uh, around 2.30. We'll break down exactly what you can expect in this today. And then in about 15 minutes, uh, one of my new favorite writers, a guy by the name of Tony Woodleaf, that I got to I – I don't know that I got to meet him, but I got to be in his presence the other day. And I've been reading his book, I, Citizen – it's a blueprint for reclaiming American self-governance. We'll get into it more uh, when we talk in about 20 minutes. But uh, essentially his thesis is that all of our individual freedoms are being taken away by bureaucrats and by unelected judges. And that the people that are in this country, whether they're Democrats, Republicans, independents, left-wing, right-wing, non-political, we're not nearly as divided as the media makes us out to be. So stay tuned for that conversation. I find a lot of what he says here pretty compelling. And then uh, this is going to be very interesting. A lot of people are very excited about this. At 3.30, I'm going to be joined by a three-time Emmy Award-winning actress by the name of Martha Byrne. Very interesting. We had Kelsey Grammer on the show yesterday, back-to-back Emmy-winning actors, right? So she was mostly well-known for being on soap operas. I've never gotten into soap operas, but... I know a lot of the folks that are listeners to our show do like soap operas and are big fans of Martha Burns. Now, we're not really going to talk about soap operas, although what's happening to her now could very easily be the plot of a soap opera. Her husband is a retired NYPD sergeant, and he has been arrested by the FBI. She believes unjustly. And we're going to get into this case, which has international implications and all sorts of uh, all sorts of other things. So I'm looking forward to that. Now, that being said, in my heart of hearts, even though look, they say a leopard can't change its spots. Right. In my heart of hearts, I'm still a New York political nerd. And I have fought my entire life against gerrymandering. In fact, one of the last conversations that I had with Ed Koch in, in person was about this joint effort that we were both involved in to end gerrymandering in New York. And it wasn't just Ed Koch and me. Uh, he, Ed Koch was the leader of it with Henry Stern, the former Parks Commissioner, and Dick Dady from Citizen Union. But Mike Bloomberg was very involved with it, and so was uh, Rudy Giuliani, a lot of other folks as well. But um, we were successful in that effort. 
to get gerrymandering prohibited in New York State. The voters passed it overwhelmingly, and it was a, a major victory. Now, what happened in New York this year was the state legislature essentially tried to subvert and ignore the will of the voters and pass gerrymandered district lines already. I won't belabor the point, but some Republicans challenged this in court, and ultimately New York's highest court, the Court of Appeals, ruled in their favor. They threw out the gerrymandered district lines. And the court, the uh, the judge that first ruled that these lines were unconstitutional, Judge McAllister, he appointed a special master to come up with these district lines. Now, these district lines are going to be official in three days, May 20th. And we got a peek at them yesterday. And barring uh, people can still testify and offer whatever proposed changes they want to for the next three days. But barring any proposed changes, these district lines are really interesting. First of all, I commend the special master in he drew these district lines very fairly. I don't think anybody got all of what they want. And uh, everybody got, you know, the old expression, nobody gets everything, everybody gets something. That's sort of what he did here. And I really love what he did in terms of trying to create as many competitive elections as possible for Congress. And then I haven't uh, looked at the state Senate lines yet. I believe those are going to be out today. Uh, Although, no, no, actually, we're going to – those are apparently out too. So I'm going to get a look at those. But um, in the congressional lines here, this is a big win for the voters, in my view, because they're going to get competitive – primary elections, and they're going to get competitive general elections. And I'm of the belief, and I am going to maybe bring this up with Tony Woodleaf in 15 minutes, I'm of the belief that that's good for the voters. And that when you have competitive elections, the voters are the real winners. So I'm looking forward to that very, very much. Now, um, what does that mean? A couple of interesting things are already coming out about this. If you heard the uh, the Cats at Night show, then you know that um, you you know some of this. But a whole bunch of members of Congress, because New York lost a congressional seat, a whole bunch of members of Congress are ending up in the same district with one another. Now, two of the the most senior members of New York's congressional delegation are Carolyn Maloney and Gerald Nadler. Now, they both are in the same district. They now live in this newly constituted 12th district, and both of them say they're running in this newly constituted 12th district. So that's interesting. Congresswoman Nidia Velasquez, who represents a lot of Brooklyn, she now finds herself living where? In, a, in Congresswoman Nicole Maliotakis's district. Now, she's obviously not going to run against Nicole Maliotakis because I think she knows she can't win in Staten Island. But where does she run? We don't know. And then a very interesting situation where it looks like you're going to have Congressman uh, Jamal Bowman possibly running in the same district as Congressman Mondaire Jones and Sean Patrick Maloney possibly running against Congressman Mondaire Jones. So you could have a situation... Uh, where you have three congressmen, 
Maloney, Mondaire Jones, and Bowman all, all running in one district. Now, that's unlikely. Probably it'll be Bowman and Jones in one district and then Maloney in the other district. And we don't know what's going to happen with uh, Antonio Delgado's district, really, because uh, that's going to be an open seat now that he's going to be lieutenant governor. Now, one of the other interesting things about this, well, there's two interesting things. One, um, and, and I don't want to bore you with numbers and I don't want to get too inside baseball here, but now the 10th congressional district, which is mostly the Nadler district as it is now, but Nadler's no longer in that district. The 10th congressional district, which is a lot of Manhattan, that now has no incumbent. It also includes portion of Brooklyn. There's already talk, and apparently he's making calls, that former New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio is going to be running for this 10th Congressional District. And I'm sure there'll be other Democrats running. Brad Hoylman is going to be running. Um, but we could be looking at a primary with Hoylman and de Blasio. I don't know who the Republicans are running there. But that's a heavily Democratic district, so it's uh, unlikely that the Republican would be competitive. So that would be quite interesting if de Blasio makes this his opportunity for a comeback. But one thing – well, there's two final things that I want to say about this, and then if you want to comment, you can. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Well, I'll make it three final things. One is you got to understand this is a disaster for the House Democrats. They thought that this gerrymander that they passed was going to be enough to maybe even deliver the House single-handedly to the Democratic column. And I commend the judges in the Court of Appeals knowing – I mean, they're all appointed by Democrats – doing the right thing even though they knew it was going to result in possibly fewer Democratic seats. Uh, uh, Very impressive that they did that, and I said so at the time. But a couple of things here. Now, this district, this map is a disaster for the Democrats. So New York is going to have um, uh, 26 seats under the new lines. Five of those districts will lean Republican. Um, One, two, three, four. Another five are going to be toss-ups. So another two of them. District 4 out on Long Island and District 17, which is in basically the Hudson Valley, could go Republican in a wave year if there's a big Republican year like we had last year. So under these new lines, my analysis of this, as experts uh, have said also, not just me, my analysis of this, and I've been interviewing experts about this all day to get their take, and it's not far off from what I'm saying, is Republicans – can now be competitive in New York State in 12 out of 26 congressional districts in New York State. Now, that's incredible. That is absolutely incredible. Now, one of the congressmen that I didn't mention, or one of the congressional districts that I didn't mention, that now finds himself, or that that now finds it, uh, one district that now finds itself with two members of Congress is a district in Brooklyn, Basically, the 8th Congressional District, because now under these new lines, you have Congressman Hakeem Jeffries and 
Congresswoman Yvette Clark. Now, Yvette Clark comes from a legendary political family in Brooklyn, and she's very popular out there. Hakeem Jeffries is a um, powerhouse. He's considered a rising star, not just in New York Democratic politics, but um, in the whole country, in the House as it is. Now, they're now in the same district. There, Yvette Clark and Hakeem Jeffries are now in the same district. So they could be in the same situation that Nadler and Maloney are and that Mondaire Jones and Jamal Bowman are. And this is and they're not happy about it at all. They're now threatening to go to court and do all sorts of other things. But I know at this point it's going to be too late. Hakeem Jeffries commented about this yesterday to New York One. I haven't closely studied the opinion. I, of course, read it and reviewed it. I do think that the State Court of Appeals um, did not value the importance of communities of interest uh, being uh, stitched together uh, in the way that I think the legislature endeavored to do, which is a consideration that I think is sanctioned by the Constitution. And it also didn't seem to prioritize making sure that there were opportunity to elect districts uh, for communities of color and so-called coalition districts uh, where African-American, Caribbean-American, Latino, and Asian-American communities uh, could potentially uh, vote in a way that allows for the representation of their choice and a person of color perhaps uh, to be successful. I think that um, that was problematic Uh, But perhaps what was more significant uh, is that the process that has been put in place moving forward seems to me to be fundamentally flawed and unfair. Uh, I couldn't believe my ears when I heard that from Hakeem Jeffries. Now, uh, Hakeem Jeffries, I've met him. He's a very smart guy. He's a very intelligent guy. And um, he's got a lot going for him. No doubt about it. He's a rising star politically when it comes to New York. That is one of the most the, the beginning of what he said is one of the most absurd things that I've ever heard. The end of what he said is one of the most ridiculous and incorrect things that I've ever heard. Let me begin with um, the end of what he said there, because it's just so crazy. He's saying, essentially, that this process going forward, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, is not going to work well? It's not going to work? Well, excuse me, this is a process meaning a process free of political tampering and gerrymandering by politicians that the voters voted for. The voters voted for this. Overwhelmingly. This was the culmination of a fight that went on for decades, led by Democrats like uh, Ed Koch, Republicans like Rudy Giuliani, uh, liberals like Henry Stern, independents like Mike Bloomberg and me. So this is crazy what he's saying. I mean, is he really saying that going forward he's concerned about the redistricting process? We got, because of this court order, we got the fairest district lines that New York has seen in 30 years. The only thing that's comparable to this, I think, was, uh, I don't know that there has been. I mean, look, it was a different political makeup back in 1994. But this is the, and I don't want to sound like I'm rooting for the Republicans, I'm not. But this is the best the Republicans could hope for in terms of going into a congressional election in New York since 1994. Now, if they uh, blow it at the top of the ticket, if they don't have a strong gubernatorial candidate, then it won't matter. The Democrats will win in all these newfound swing districts. But 
I think this is a great map. Now, let's go to the beginning of what he said, where he essentially said he's playing the race card, basically, where he's essentially saying that communities of color have an interest in electing uh, representatives of color. Now, I'll agree with that. I'll agree with that. Hakeem Jeffries is going to run against who? Yvette Clark. Now, Hakeem Jeffries is black. Yvette Clark is black. So whoever wins, a community of color is still going to be represented by a person of color. So what are you playing the race card for? Now, understand also that New York lost a seat. They lost a congressional representative. A lot of people believe it's because the cost of living in New York is too much. A lot of people believe it's because crime is too much in New York. And there's a lot of other factors that a lot of politicians that Hakeem Jeffries sees eye to eye with were responsible for instituting those policies and those living conditions. So don't look at the Court of Appeals. And by the way, they're not even the ones that appointed the special master. It was the lower court judge, Judge McAllister, that appointed the special master. So I'm not quite sure how closely Congressman Jeffries read that opinion. But um, don't blame the Court of Appeals. Blame the policies in New York, which drove people out of this state, which caused us to lose a representative. And I am so over this notion that race is the supreme issue when it comes to deciding who should be in what district. I find that offensive to people of all races because essentially what it's saying is, oh, well, people of color are always going to vote for someone of color. No. Let them vote for who they want to vote for. And if it happens to be a black person, great. If it happens to be a white person, great. Whatever. Why is race a a condition that needs to be taken more into account than, say, voter registration history or 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 anything else? So I found that really weak on the part of Hakeem Jeffries to play the race card in the manner that he did. And I completely disagree with him as to the fact that because he finds himself in a congressional district with Yvette Clark, that that's not taking into account the best interests of communities of color. I think that's way wrong. And let's say that's true. Why is not taking into account the minority political views in this state like when they were trying to butcher Nicole Maliotakis's district, why is that not appropriate? Um, or why is that appropriate versus, I didn't hear him saying anything when they were trying to gerrymander Nicole out of existence. Okay, so there's that. You can comment on any of that that you want. 800-848-9222. Now, um, here's what's interesting. And I'm going to let you behind the scenes on uh, some conversations that I've been having with a lot of people all day. This Tom Swazi seat. Now, Tom Swazi is, unless he changes his mind, he's not running for re-election to Congress. He's running for governor. He had a district on Long Island that was somewhat competitive, Long Island and Queens. Under the proposed maps that have been ruled unconstitutional, they made that a heavily Democratic district. And that's why there were one, two, three, four, five, six Democrats all running in that primary. And there was one Republican one running. And it was one of those districts, the way it was drawn, where it looked like whoever won the Democratic primary was going to win the general election. Now, under this new map, that's not the case. 
If you go by the way the new district voted in 2020, Trump got 47.5% of the vote, basically. Okay? Now, there is a Republican running. Very nice guy. I've, I've met him. I know him a little bit. His name is George Santos. Um, he He's run for this seat before. I am hearing that uh, George Santos may not be the strongest general election candidate for a variety of reasons. And I don't want to repeat any rumors, so I'm not going to. But this is a real opportunity for the Republicans to pick up a seat here in the third congressional district, which is mostly Nassau County and a little bit of Queens. And I believe I have the perfect candidate for that seat. And Look, everyone that filed petitions already, all the Democrats and George Santos, they don't have to petition again. But any other new candidate that wants to run, including you, by the way, in any of these districts, you can start circulating petitions by May 21st. Uh, No, on May 21st. You only have three weeks to do it. You collect 1,062 signatures. You're on the ballot. Now, here's what's interesting. I'll tell you who I think the perfect candidate in that district is. Curtis Sliwa. Curtis Sliwa, who ran for mayor last year, did about 27.5% of the vote, did very well in the Queens portion of this district. Very well. And Nassau County, you see what's happening out there. They're already trending Republican. With They won the DA's race. They won the county executive's race. I think if Curtis Sliwa is the Republican nominee for that seat, I think he wins. Against any of these Democrats, Alessandra Biagi, uh, Rob Zimmerman, um, whomever, I really think Curtis could go to Congress if he jumps into this race. Now, he's got three days to make a decision because he's going to have to petition starting on the 21st. I've urged Curtis privately to do it. Now, I hope that he does do it, but I hope if you think this is a good idea that you will reach out to the leadership of the Nassau County and Queens Republican parties and urge them to go with Curtis as well. And you'll reach out to Curtis as well to convince him to run because uh, I think this would be amazing. Can you imagine Curtis in the house of representatives and having a national platform to talk about issues like crime uh, and, you know, drugs and all sorts of issues. I mean, that would be incredible. Incredible to have Curtis Sliwa, Marjorie Taylor Greene, um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Matt Gates all in the same House of Representatives. Forget about it. They're going to have to stop broadcasting the congressional hearings on C-SPAN and put them on pay-per-view instead. I mean, it's going to be wild. So I have urged Curtis privately to run for this seat. Uh, And now I think he would beat George Santos in a congressional primary. But I think really what George Santos should do is rather than run for Congress, run for state Senate. Todd Kaminsky, uh, whose district was formerly a Republican district occupied by Dean Skelos, that's an open seat now. Kaminsky's not running for re-election. And Santos could run for the Kaminsky seat and he'd be helped by having Curtis right above him at the top at the top of his ticket. So give me um, – we'll take a couple of quick calls, 800-848-WABC, and then we're going to talk with Tony Woodleaf, 800-848-9222. Let me know your thoughts on any of that. Curtis for Congress, de Blasio for Congress. Imagine that, Curtis and de Blasio both going to Congress representing New York State. 
uh, and uh, Maloney v. Nadler, gerrymandering in general, and Hakeem Jeffries playing the race card. I know I said a lot there, and uh, I didn't expect to rant for this long, but if you have thoughts, let me know. 800-848-WABC. Al is in Yonkers. Hello, Al. Al, I got you. you uh, uh, Yeah, can you hear me? Yes, I got you now. Can you hear me any now? Yeah, Al, go ahead. What's your comment? Uh, No, my comment is, you know, Curtis Sliwa has been around, and I think he's a good person. Uh, I think he ran a race for mayor that it's a numbers game now that a Republican to win uh, as the nominee in New York City is, is basically impossible. The last person to be able to pull it off was Mayor Giuliani, who did it with a coalition of liberal backing from the uh, Roy Harding at the time. Right, Ray Harding, yeah. But now you, yeah, Ray Harding, excuse me. So uh, Mr. Giuliani, who was a mayor. uh, I mean, and obviously Bloomberg was elected on the Republican line three times also. Yeah, but you know, when uh, Bloomberg, uh, the factors that helped Bloomberg is right. No, I'm aware of the history. But so where does that leave us with the congressional race, Al? No, okay. No, the congressional race is that you mentioned about Curtis Sliwa. The problem is that Curtis Sliwa right now, and again, I think he's a good candidate. I think he's done a lot for the city. I listened to him on the uh, talk shows. The problem is he might get labeled a carpetbagger. Well, he lives on the Upper West Side of the city. Well, Al, Al, if he you know, runs. Oh, yeah, Al, sorry, go ahead. Cu- couple of things, Al. One is you don't have to live in your district in order to run. Uh, in fact, under these new lines, you have a whole bunch of members of Congress that won't be living in their districts. Nidia Velasquez will no longer, if she runs again, will no longer be living in her district. Grace Meng will no longer be living in her district. You have person after person in New York that now finds themselves running in a district that they don't live in. So I don't think Curtis is going to be alone on that one. And look, the Constitution only requires you to live in the state, and he used to live in Queens. Uh, Harold in Manhattan. Hello, Harold. Yeah, hi. Um, Regarding the business of what you said about they don't have to live in the district, I agree with you. You're correct on that. Well, it's not a matter of agreement. That's what the Constitution says. Well, that's right. But um, regarding the Nadler versus Maloney, um, why would they run against each other? Believe me, they, that will not happen. Well, they because will, one well, of them will run in the tenth. Right. That's what I assumed. That's what I assumed. Oh, yeah. But Nadler and Maloney, they both put out statements today saying they're running in the twelfth. But oh, really? Nadler yeah. said in the twelfth. They both did. Yes. Okay, if if he made a statement, I didn't know that because the tenth is his di- been, been his district forever. Right, but most side. of his district, because the, all the districts are are larger now, uh, most of his district is now in what's considered the twelfth district. Boy, okay, I haven't seen the maps. I've got to see them. Where do you where do you find the maps? Um, you know, city and state has a very good um, has a very good article which includes the maps. Uh, but um, I'll uh, you know what I'll, I'll tweet it. I'll put a, a link on Facebook, and you could see all the all the maps uh, for all these seats. And you could just type in your member of Congress. You could see the maps that were rejected by the court and the proposed new maps. And you could see for yourself how these districts voted. I'm going to put that on Facebook. Facebook.com. Right. Curtis Miranda should Center. run. Curtis should run. I, right. I'm with you, Harold. Thank you. Squeeze in one more call here before we get of uh, before we get to um, 
before we get to uh, Tony Woodleaf. And then those of you that want to comment on this, um, it's not totally removed from what I'm going to be talking with Tony about. So just you're welcome to call back or you're welcome to hold. Benny is in Harlem. Hello, Benny. Hey, how you doing? Hang on. Let me check. Hello. How you doing? Uh, I'm okay now. Okay now. Can you hear me? Uh, for Hello? better or worse, I can, Benny. Yes. Hello. Okay, hold on, hold on. Hold on. Can you hear me better now? Yeah, Benny. Aside from Listen. you know testing your cell phone service, what's on your mind this morning? Okay, I want to touch on five things. First and foremost, you guys at WABC and you, I listen to you at night. You guys are great, fabulous. Thank God Thank for you. you. Thank you. And hopefully, you wake the people to what they need to know. Number two, I called the other night, told Curtis he should have won. The mayor thing, yes, the whole city would have turned around all of a sudden. You know it, I know it. Number three, the Democrats are using a weapon against the American people that we cannot fight against. You know what that weapon is? What? Humiliation. Okay. Humiliation. They are humiliating us on the world stage, local stage, national stage, regional stage. They're just trying to humiliate us. That's the next thing. Next thing I want to talk about is the fact that WABC should have their own party. <laughs> <laughs> That's not bad. Uh, That's not bad, Benny. Uh, I'll tell you, uh, the parties that we have as a radio station, there's usually an open bar. So that would be the kind of party that I would join. Tony Woodleaf, author of the book I, Citizen, A Blueprint for Reclaiming American Self-Governance, joins me straight ahead. I tell you, I have been fascinated my whole life with how to make this country work better. And I've been really dismayed over the course of the last decade because things only seem to be getting worse. And when I say things are getting worse, I don't just mean the quality of our government is getting worse. I mean that uh, it seems like there's a certain anger that's palpable out there in the air. It seems like you have folks that used to be ready to kill each other, that now don't even talk with one another. Well, what if that's just my perception? And what if that's not really reality? There is a fascinating new book out that uh, posits maybe we're not as divided as people like me seem to think we are. Tony Woodleaf is the uh, executive vice president at the State Policy Network and the author of this terrific new book. It's called I, Citizen, A Blueprint for Reclaiming America's Self-Governance. Kind enough to stay up late with us this evening. Tony, uh, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. It was a real treat to be able to meet you the other night. Hey, Frank. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to be here. Uh, Tony, before I talk to you about the book, you had a column in the Washington Post 
a few weeks ago, which, I mean, it's pretty closely related to a lot of the themes that you touch upon in your book, in which you say, beware party bosses, the rise of the unaffiliated is coming for you. Uh, I think a lot of people might know that there are a lot of people that don't identify as either Democrat or Republican or don't register as Democrat or Republican. But what does that exactly mean for the party bosses? Why should the party bosses around the country be a little concerned at this rising number of unaffiliated voters? Well, it's, uh, you know, in any industry, if you see people leaving your product, um, you start to worry. Uh, but politicians don't seem to think that way. So we know now that um, 42 percent of Americans identify as independents. They don't take a party label um, that those percentages are obscured in states with closed primaries like New York, because, you know, you don't want to waste your vote. So you register with a party so you can vote in a primary. But that doesn't mean that excited about that. party. So. All these fights over redistricting that we've seen all assume that the way people voted in the last election is how they're going to vote in the next election. They assume that people are committed to one party or the other, but all the evidence tells us that's not true at all. Now, a big portion of your book deals with the freedoms that we as Americans are losing at the hands of the political elites, the political class, these unelected judges and these unelected bureaucrats. How does the political class take away our freedoms? What freedoms have Americans actually lost? Yeah, it's uh, one of the things we've seen over the last 10 years is that for every law that's passed by Congress, passed by the people that we elect to go to Washington to represent our interests, for every law that Congress passes, federal agencies create 28 rules that have the full force of law. And so what that tells us is most of the governing now out of D.C. is not done by people that we elected. And so it covers a lot of things. It covers, you know, what what you can, uh, your kids are going to be tested on, uh, you know, where a cell tower can be placed in your community, you know, whether or not you and your local library can restrict access to pornography on the library's computers. None of these things are allowed, uh, the people at the local level are not really allowed to make these decisions in our communities. They're made by judges and bureaucrats in Washington, D.C. So what are, give us an example of, um, you know, a freedom that used to be taken for granted by an individual American, but now is uh, dictated to them by some bureaucrat in D.C.? Oh, sure. So if you look at a lot of, for example, um, what our kids are taught in schools, you know, once uh, a state or community begins receiving federal dollars, they're on the hook to follow the rules that the feds create. And if you, you know, once you're, you're used to getting that money, you don't want to give it up. And so an extreme example was during the pandemic we saw uh, in your own state of New York, just the, the terrible practice um, the governor had of pushing um elderly people uh, back into nursing homes mm. among the most vulnerable New Yorkers. And uh, part of that was this this notion that it's required by federal law, by the federal bureaucracy that oversees Medicare and Medicaid. We saw the same thing in Michigan. Um, and then, of course, you, you, the governor at the time, as we all know now, covered up the resulting deaths. But you see a lot of pressure like that exerted over schools, over nursing homes, over hospitals, because uh, states receive a third or more of their budgets from federal agencies. And so the federal agencies get to call the tune about how those dollars are spent. 
A lot of your book, and we're talking with Tony Woodleaf, if you're just tuning in, he's the author of the book I, Citizen, a, a Blueprint for Reclaiming American Self-Governance. It, a lot of your book deals with dispelling the notion that uh, we're, all, we're on the verge of civil war and we're all ready to kill each other. Um, explain to the folks listening the, how divided America is right now and why maybe we're not as divided as the media perceive us to be. Yeah, that's that to me, Frank, was one of the most important um, reasons I had in writing the book, because, you know, what we hear from the left and the right from pundits is that we're uh, bitterly divided right down the middle in America, team red versus team blue, and we hate each other more and more. The reality is when you go to reliable survey data, uh, what you find is most Americans are not that invested in a political party. Like, like I said, most Americans identify as independent. Only about 9% of Americans will describe themselves as extremely liberal or extremely conservative. If you look at what they think about issues like immigration or crime or taxes or welfare, they're pretty much clustered in the middle. And we see that when we just look at Say, take a a typically red congressional district, one that votes Republican again and again. Compare that to a blue congressional district. Uh, You'll find that on most issues, the people in those districts, you can't tell them apart. They're not that divided on most issues. And so we have the picture we get from pundits, which is that we're bitterly divided, far apart from each other. But all the data, when you ask Americans themselves, shows that Democrats, Republicans, aren't that far apart on things, and they don't hate each other. So it's, it's a story that serves the pundits, right, because that's their excuse to just govern from D.C., because the narrative is, well, we've got to stop the other side. Um, but the truth is most Americans would rather compromise and govern together. So um, why, do, why does the media portray the country as starkly divided if your anecdotal observations don't, um, you know, don't reflect that and the polling data doesn't reflect that. Right. I think part of it is it's a great narrative and, uh, you know, it sells, right? If you, so if you look at, um, there's been some great studies in the media, we see that a, a, a typical way that a journalist will write a story about America, politics and polarization is you do what's called the man in the street interview. You go find a couple of people and you ask their opinions about politics. Well, there's some really good empirical data that shows that these so-called men and women in the street are extreme examples. They're not really from the center. And so it sells, you know, the idea of conflict sells. Uh, it certainly animates activists and donors for the political parties. And I think it also excuses for politicians. It makes it so that they don't have to subject things to a vote because created this impression that the other side is about to impose socialism or fascism on us. And so that excuses the extreme actions to stop that so-called other side. So it, sir, it sells papers, it gets eyes, on, you know, cable stations, and it allows politicians to circumvent the democratic process, which has always been about compromise. So the media wins uh, by uh, getting their audience revved up in by playing into this professional wrestling narrative of of politics. The politicians win and they get to raise a lot of money by getting the audience revved up. And the, the only losers are people that actually want to move forward as Americans and see real progress. That's right. And I think the, the other part of it is 
while I, I, you know, in my book, I talk about how most Americans are not animated by this kind of hatred. The percentage of Americans who are engulfed in that kind of partisan hatred, it is growing. And that serves the politicians because, you know, if you can motivate your voters simply by their hatred of the other side, you don't have to deliver as much, right? Because they're driven by their anger. And so it's, a, it's kind of a smokescreen for politicians who don't have much to offer. And so that, to me, is the real danger, is that they bring more regular people into this belief that we're in, in, on the verge of civil war. They could actually bring it about. And so that's what you know, I'm trying to get the message out, that you know, your neighbor is not your enemy. The political class in Washington, D.C. is your enemy. Uh, the book is I, Citizen, a Blueprint for Reclaiming American Self-Governance. So let's look at the blueprint. How do we reclaim American self-governance? What is the first step? Well, you know, what I talk about in the book, I didn't want to wave a magic wand as much as I wish I had one. Um, so I just I start with the thing that any one of us has the most control over, which is our own heart. And so I suggest that, you know, you get to know your neighbor and learn to love your neighbor. Um, doesn't mean you have to like them, but, you know, love is action. So so get to know your neighbor uh, and get to know people in your community. And the reason I say that is not because I think, you know, everybody should, you know, have a campfire and sing Kumbaya. It's because when we get to know the people around us who are different than us, inoculates us against the message that we get relentlessly from the media and from political parties that our neighbors are our enemies. So we start there. And then I encourage, like you were just doing before I came on here, I heard you encouraging your listeners to think about running for office. And I think that's a good step. The data shows that the political parties right now discourage regular people from running for office, and they recruit the most extreme people from our society to run. And so one of the things we can do is just start running for local office again. And then I recommend strongly, uh, you know, that you invest in state-based groups that are holding your public officials accountable, like the, you know, the Empire Center in, in New York that did a lot of work to expose what Andrew Cuomo was up to, uh, hiding data about his decisions around nursing homes. So that's just a few of the things. But mostly it's get to know your neighbors and get engaged because this is your country, right? It's not their country. It's not the D.C.'s country. It's our country. We the people. So we have a responsibility to act that out. A lot of your your premise is that um, decision making is better done on a state and a local level than it is done in D.C. And on the surface, that that makes sense, because you'd think people in New York City are in a better position to know the needs of folks in New York City than a bureaucrat in Washington that's never been to New York City. Same with Sheboygan or Chicago or upstate New York or wherever. But uh, we see this in New York State, where we notoriously had the least functional legislature in the whole country, there are a lot of state governments and state legislatures that are just as screwed up as any Washington bureaucracy or as any uh, congressional uh, subcommittee. Why is moving power to the states necessarily better when a lot of state governments don't seem to be functioning all that well either? Well, I think what we see, the record is that most state legislatures are more functional than Congress they're just as polarized, but they still get along better, in part because the rules that they have to operate under, like they have to have a balanced budget, require the compromise that Congress can get away with without um, you know, doing. So there's still a pretty good track record for most state legislatures. 
And I think, too, there's a there's a, um, a reason to push decision making even further down below states into counties and cities. But the bottom line is, even if you're in a dysfunctional state, you have a lot more opportunity to make a difference there than you do trying to change Congress and change these you know, hopelessly corrupt Washington, mm. D.C. institutions. So I think you still got to start local. And the last thing on that is the people who end up in Washington in Congress, they're mostly recruited from state legislatures. And those people are mostly recruited from local government. So if you want to institute that change, you start local. And if enough of us get involved, well, then eventually we change the composition of Congress itself and we get workhorses there instead of show horses. You cite uh, Robert Putnam in your book, and I've uh, I've talked about him and his work on this show before and uh, even interviewed him uh, a couple of years ago. And, uh, you know, his book, Bowling Alone, seems so much worse uh, today than when he wrote it 20 years ago. I think if he were to write that book today, he would be calling it uh, bowling virtually alone because we don't even go to a bowling alley where there's nobody. You go to a computer screen and and bowl by yourself. Um, How much of the problem that you and he both talk about not having rotary clubs and churches and fraternal organizations and Kiwanis clubs and groups where people actually interact with one another – in addition to a political problem, which allows these divi- these um, seeds of division to be sowed even dipper- deeper, how much of that is also a societal problem? Well, Frank, I think that is a part of it. I mean, Putnam is very wise in that regard. When we have these other elements that contribute to our identity as humans, you know, you're, you're a, a member of a certain church, you're a parent, you uh, go to a certain school, you have a certain kind of occupation, you live in a certain neighborhood. Those things that inform our identity, they bind us to one another across the political divide. But when those things matter less and less, well, politics is a cheap substitute. And the political parties have sorted themselves that, you know, there's no pro-choice people in the Republican camp. There's no pro-gun people in the Democrat camp. So there's they're, they're completely opposite. And so we've lost cross-cutting, you know, things that bind us together. So I think that's a big part of the challenge. And so that's why I say in the book, you could start by getting to know your neighbor. I mean, it seems like a little bitty thing, but if enough of us do that, really get engaged in our communities, it's like an inoculation because this partisan ideology is like a sickness Mm. and it infects people. So we've got to inoculate ourselves by getting to know our neighbors again. Absolutely. You also deal a little bit with the importance of supporting local journalism, newspapers and the like. Why is that so important? Well, I think, it. you know, again, you've got it's cheap and easy for national media, right? They want to cut their costs. So this kind of stuff, these polarization studies and cheap surveys are unreliable. That's just sort of their stock and trade. Uh, they cut costs. And so they only see that kind of national picture. But what's really going on in your community is the stuff you can have an impact on. So if you think about it this way, if most of the news you get is about what's going on in Washington, well, you can't do anything about that. So you sit there and you just rage at your TV screen, right? And you feel impotent as a citizen. But if you're getting real information about what's going on in your community, how the school is spending the money, you know, whether the garbage is being picked up or not, whether the city council is behaving and doing their job or not, well, doggone it, you can do something about that. 
but you need that local coverage in order to be informed. So I encourage everybody, even if it's not the best paper, subscribe to a local newspaper. And if they're not good, start complaining, you know, and help them get better. But that local journalism is how we, you know, get the information we need to be good citizens. What is an important political reform that can be made? You know, I've talked about a lot of different political reforms on the show, and you deal with a couple of them in your book. But if there was one thing that was going to make government function better, whether it's term limits, whether it's same-day voter registration, whether it's open primaries, whether it's uh, nonpartisan redistricting, if you were to pick the most important political reform that could improve the process of governing in this country, what would you pick? You know, I'm going to make some of my conservative friends mad, but um, I would restrict the amount of money that can flow into a political district from people who don't live there. Right. So so if you live in Iowa, you have no business with what the people in Colorado choose to do in terms of who they elect. And we see right now that the most extreme members of Congress get most of their funding from people who don't even live in the communities they claim to represent. So that right there would be just one thing I would I would give a try if it made a difference. Uh, Tony, you are also, and I'll end with this, and I hope you'll come back soon, and we'll talk about uh, a lot of the other issues that uh, you cover in your book, but you're also the founder of something called Intentional Fathering. Now, I am uh, a new father of a a five-and-a-half-month-old, and and, uh, I'm wondering, what advice can you give for me or maybe listeners that are similarly situated who find themselves being a father for the first time, particularly people like me who may work odd hours or have uh, a seemingly really demanding job about um, what should I keep in mind specifically and what should fathers keep in mind in general? You know, that's, it's a great question, and I, I put that together, that website and other material, um, not from a position of thinking I'm great at it. Um, I just I have six sons, and I felt like I, I always need to improve. But I think the most important thing is, um, you know, your children know when you disapprove. I think especially we men, we belabor uh, what we're not happy about. We feel like we've got to get it through their thick heads so they'll finally learn. But the truth is, Our kids already know when we disapprove. We don't have to say a word, and they know. What they need to know is when they've done something genuinely good that we approve. And so as I've looked back on my own failures as a father, one of the big differences in my own parenting is when I started praising my children for a job well done and laying off the criticism because they already know when they're not meeting the mark. What they need to know is that the father approves of them and, you know, welcomes the good job they're doing. Tony, on that note, uh, we're going to have to end it there. I hope we can talk again soon. Good luck with the book. I hope everybody reads it. Thank you, Frank. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. The book is called I, Citizen. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, give me a call, 1-800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano.
Gees. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. If you want to know what music we're playing, uh, just join our Facebook group, and uh, we post the songs, the artist, and the title of the song each and every morning right after the show. Uh, just search Moreno Radio Fans and Haters on Facebook. Join the group. And uh, it's also meant to be a forum for covering the issues that we're doing on the show. So yesterday... Once again, my wife, I feel like I could say this every week. Once again, my wife took my cat Melchizedek to the veterinarian. This time to a specialist in New Jersey. For those of you keeping track of our veterinary bills, because Melky is ineligible for pet insurance and has a pre-existing condition, we are now at about $4,100 in counting in veterinary bills. So this is this is one expensive cat. Now, um, they took the ultrasound uh, at his previous vet and they found some hardening of his intestines, which they thought could be an indication. And he's got diarrhea. So they thought that could be an indication of either uh, irritable bowel syndrome or maybe some sort of form of lymphoma. So my wife took Melchizedek to the vet. She was able to get him in the carrier again. She's getting very good at that, which was something she was not able to do for years. And she took him to the vet, and she really liked this vet a great deal more than the previous vets that she was dealing with. She said, and it's nothing against young people, but she said that the older vet seemed a lot more experienced and a lot better than the younger vets that she'd been dealing with. And a lot of the news seems to be good. So we're waiting on some blood work from him for Thursday that we're going to get back on Thursday. But they took um, – we haven't been giving him insulin because the previous vet said maybe he's no longer diabetic. They took a urine sample, no sugar in his urine. So we're no longer giving him insulin. We, it looks like he may no longer be diabetic. And they think maybe the hardening of his intestines could be natural. Might not even be irritable bowel syndrome. But we'll see. We're going to wait for that blood work on Thursday. So thank you to everybody that's been emailing with thoughts and uh, well wishes about uh, Melchizedek. So uh, news seems to be good. You know, ne- nothing catastrophic at the moment. He was in pretty good mood today. Till next hour, help control the pet population, get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. With crime running rampant in New York, you need to keep yourself and your family safe. Obtaining your concealed carry firearm licenses can be difficult and time-consuming. That's where MyFirstPistol.com comes in. They'll help you secure your concealed carry license. If you're looking for a pistol, premise, rifle, or shotgun license, call 347-559-7052. 347-559-7052. You must have a valid firearm license issued by the NYPD to purchase, possess, or shoot a handgun or pistol in NYPD. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Everyone, this is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. A couple of quick notes here. A little later this hour, we're going to go through your mail. Uh, if you want to get your message read on the radio, then you can do so at uh, by emailing me at uh, frank dot m o r a n o at w a b c radio dot com. That's frank dot m o r 
A-N-O at WABCRadio.com. Additionally, um, I am actually going to be filling in from 6 a.m. until 10 a.m. on the Bernie and Sid show today with uh, John Katsimatidis, our boss. So, um, you know, I guess I'm making up for all those times I wish we I said I wish we had another hour. We're going to have four more hours. So uh, John and I are going to be on from 6 to 10 in place of Bernie and Sid. And uh, our guests are going to include Bo Deedle, uh Lydia Serrani, and Ron Insana from CNBC. And uh, who knows? With John, you know, you never know. He always gets a lot of other interesting people to come on last minute as well. So we're going to have some good discussions. And uh, on a day where we're going to see the first UFO hearings, I can't think of somebody I'd rather be on the radio with than John Katsimatidis. Also, uh, with gas prices hitting another new record, uh, I can't think of somebody I'd rather be on with than John because John knows that oil industry and the energy business inside and out. So we're going to get into that from 6 until 10. Uh, be sure to stay tuned for that or, you know, don't miss it. Now, a couple of things. One, there's this one trend. Speaking of UFOs, we're going to talk about that with Jeremy Corbell coming up in about uh, a half hour. Don't miss that. The first day of UFO hearings by Congress in over half a century. Now, we are seeing a trend all over the country, which is now very real. And I'm curious if anybody out there has observed it. We covered pool sharing the other day, sharing your swimming pool with people or renting it out. Now, you know what all the young what, what all the rage is now, especially among young people? You ready for this? Home sharing. As home prices and mortgage rates continue to climb, and by the way, these house prices are astronomical. Even with the raising of the federal interest rates, at least in our area, it costs a fortune to buy anything. As home prices and mortgage prices continue to rise, new homeowners are embracing a skill that many of them learned in kindergarten. Sharing. More Americans are renting out rooms in their own homes to fund mortgage expenses, to recoup cash. That's according to Bloomberg. Home sharing is a way for younger Americans to break into a housing market that's experiencing a huge supply problem. According to Freddie Mac, the U.S. is currently short 3.8 million housing units, which has greatly impacted prices everywhere. Last year, home prices rose by 19%. And this year, they're expected to rise by another 6%. 80% of metro areas saw home prices increase 10% or more. As these costs rise, the number of buyers who would consider renting out a portion of their home has jumped from 24% in 2019 to 31% in 2021. You believe that? The number of buyers who would consider renting out a portion of their home has jumped to 31%. Here's what's interesting, though. It differs significantly by generation. While 67% of millennials are open to sharing their homes in exchange for cash, that number drops to 57% for Generation Z and 34% for baby boomers. Think about that. 
So the baby boomers are older than the millennials. Uh, I don't see numbers for Generation X, but uh, I don't. I, so I don't have that. But the baby boomers are older than the millennials. They don't want to share their homes. They don't want to rent a room out in their house. The millennials do. The Generation Zers, who are younger than the millennials, they don't. So for whatever reason, and I'm sure it's financial mostly, the millennials are in this sweet spot of wanting to rent out their homes for cash. Millennials have 20% less wealth than their parents did at the same age. The average price of a home today is $328,000. That's compared to um, the $216,000 adjusted for inflation that baby boomers were spending on a house in 1989. So even though millennials are less well off, they have to come up with more money. So not everyone is in on sharing. Shawnee, Kansas, which is a suburb of Kansas City, they've essentially banned what they call co-living. They've made it illegal to lease to four or more unrelated people. This was an ordinance that was created to avoid situations where real estate investors would purchase a property and reconfigure the rooms to allow for more renters. Critics say the ban is both classist and racist, and it makes it harder for the city's most vulnerable residents to find affordable housing. I think that's probably true. And we could discuss whether or not it's a sensible policy. I do think it makes it harder to stay in that city. Now, we'll see where this goes. I'm curious if you've observed this or what your view of sharing your home would be. 800-848-WABC. Matt Blaze, what do you do? Do you rent? Do you own? What's your story in terms of a house? Own. You own. Never share. Would never share. That, 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 nothing, that doesn't not. surprise me. Well, you live with your longtime companion, right? Correct. So you share it with her, I guess. Yeah. But you guys share not, the bills? Yeah. But how, how long are you together, you, the, the two of you? Uh, a long time. Oh, so it's basically like a it, wife in all but it's name. It's practically common law, yeah. Right. Well, New York doesn't recognize. Or, or I don't know. Maybe you're in New Jersey. I don't think New Jersey right? does either. But yeah. It's pretty much. But like, if you were in England, this would be your common law absolutely. wife. Why don't you get married, by the way? What's the point? Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's you know, at this, at this stage, what's the point? I feel like that's your attitude with everything. You have such a defeatist <laughs> it doesn't attitude. Doesn't matter anymore. Now, uh, and Philippe, I know you're a younger guy. Do you live with your parents still? Yeah. Even though they didn't take you to baseball games or on roller coasters, you still had no problem staying staying with them. I don't see that why that would change uh, whether or not I live with them. But yeah, I still live with them. All right. Now, all I'm interested in the generational divide here. I don't know how old Matt is, but he, he's older than you. Um, he said he would never share his home. W- would you? Would you rent rent a room in someone else's house, for instance? Would I live in someone else's? Well, rent to pay rent. Yes. To like live in yeah, someone else's something house. Something I'm looking at currently. Oh, you are. Yeah. So you are a textbook example of this trend being true. Yeah, with with the price of individual apartments and everything right now, it's I yeah, it's a fortune. Only- I think it's the only uh, outcome that I, I see feasible. Interesting. All right. Well, thank you, Philippe. All right, 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Now, this is, I just have to get this off my chest. And this is, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. I'm going to spend three and a half minutes at most on this. So I don't want to upset anybody, but I have to tell you, you know what really grinds my gears? McDonald's. I've never liked McDonald's. I don't go to McDonald's. I don't like their food. 
I don't like uh, the unhealthiness of their food. I don't love. I don't like. I don't like how they destroy communities. I don't like how you could go uh, to uh, you know any city in America and they all have these golden arches. I don't like anything about McDonald's. I don't like the McDonald. You know, the one thing I'll say about them is, like Starbucks, they're another one of these businesses that if you have to use the restroom, they let you use the restroom. Other than that, I have nothing else good to say about McDonald's. They announced yesterday that they are. You might have heard Bob Brown say this in his report. That they are pulling out of Russia. After more than 30 years, they are pulling out of Russia. They are selling their business. Why? Because according to their statement, the company cannot ignore the human suffering brought about by the Russian operations in Ukraine. Now, I have no interest in defending Vladimir Putin and what he did in invading a neighboring country. No interest in doing that. But, one, how is abandoning the thousands, tens of thousands, of Russian employees that work in McDonald's, and probably the hundreds of thousands of customers that patronize the, I think it's something like 800 stores that are in Russia... How does that hurt Vladimir Putin? So there's 60,000 workers employed in Russia. There's probably maybe hundreds of thousands of workers. They've been in Russia since Russia was communist, since the days of the Soviet Union. January 31st, 1990 is when they first opened their, their first golden arches in the Soviet Union. And now they're leaving. They are... I find this absurd for a few reasons. One, um, as I've said before, all these Russian boycotts, I don't think they do anything to get Vladimir Putin to change his behavior. Do you think Vladimir Putin's sitting there stew, um, you know, um, stewing over the nuclear button and sitting there with a map of uh, the Donbass region and Crimea and Mariupol and saying, well... I was going to stick with this Ukrainian invasion. Hey, but now that Starbucks, KFC, and McDonald's have left, that's it. Tell all our troops to come home. This is so ridiculous. This is so ridiculous. The only people that are hurt by this are the rank-and-file Russians that are no longer going to be able to eat McDonald's food, uh, which, again, as, as state media put out, is not that healthy to begin with, so maybe it's a blessing in some ways. But... On the, the first point I'm going to make is about the hypocrisy of McDonald's here. Do you want to know some of the other countries that, um, that McDonald's operates in? Vietnam, a communist country. They don't even allow an opposing political party in Vietnam. A communist country. They have no problem operating there. Uh, Venezuela. You want to talk about human rights abuses? Venezuela is worse than a socialist country. Um, Venezuela, the government there is, it's basically a thugocracy. You, there's no human rights in Venezuela. You wanna, you wanna see how human rights go in Venezuela? Stand in front of a McDonald's in Venezuela and shout, Maduro sucks. And see how you're, how long you'll last while you're waiting in line for your Big Mac. It's, it's so stupid. So why is, why is what they're doing in Venezuela in terms of raping that country, taking what was 
the wealthiest country in South America, which has become basically just totally poverty stricken solely because of the decisions made by the the government of thugs that runs that country. Why is that okay, but not what they're doing in Russia? Lebanon. Lebanon. You know who runs the, the government in Lebanon? Hezbollah. Hezbollah. Which many people believe is, if they're not a terrorist organization, they at least support terrorism, not just in the Middle East, but elsewhere. Um, Saudi Arabia. Ukraine which is, in spite of what the media says, is not exactly a model of democracy. Um, Jordan. How are those elections in Jordan? Ask the king. Now, Jordan is an American ally, too. India. Um, there's country after... Qatar, a.k.a. Qatar. There's country after country that... The United Arab Emirates, Bahrain... Egypt, Oman, Kuwait, these are all countries that McDonald's has no problem operating in. But Russia, that's where we draw the line. I find this absurd. But lastly, the reason I'm frustrated by this, aside from the hypocrisy, um, aside from the fact that I don't think this is going to be effective in the least at getting Vladimir Putin to change his behavior, is... Oh, oh, by the way, did I mention China? No, I didn't. China. China, where there's, again, another communist country where there's no such thing as human rights. Try and tell the truth about COVID in China and see how quickly they'll let you wait in line for some chicken McNuggets over there. They're still in China. China's no problem. Um, but if you want to be a Uyghur while you're waiting for your human rights to be denied to you by the government, at least you could still get a, uh, what are the things that everyone, the shamrock shake. It's a, What a joke. But the nice thing about McDonald's operating in Russia and China is they could be an exporter of American values. Now, if American companies like KFC, Starbucks, Coca-Cola, Heineken, McDonald's, if they pull out of Russia, do you think that's going to make the average rank-and-file Russian look more fondly? towards the United States or less fondly? I, I think you know the answer. The bottom line is, the more people in any country get to know American exports, whether that export is music, movies, radio shows like this one, or American fast food products, the less they're going to be able to demonize America. If America is totally alien to them tip of the hat to jeremy corbell who's coming up in 10 minutes if america is this big demon that oppresses people all around the world uh in the eyes of what russia is told by its leaders then if there's nothing to counteract that narrative then that's the impression that russians are left with but it's a lot like when nixon was in the uh, kitchen debate with khrushchev If Russians or Chinese or Vietnamese get to know American products and get comfortable with American culture, and yes, unfortunately, McDonald's is a big part of American culture, then the tougher it is for our two communities, our two countries to be 
at war with one another in this Cold War that's rapidly turning hot. Um, so the company, McDonald's, says it can't ignore the human suffering brought about by the Russian operations in Ukraine. The Russian state media said the following. This is not my view. It's Pravda. Isn't that funny? The company that has been following the armies of the U.S. all over the planet, never even mentioning human suffering, as the U.S. destroyed Iraq with depleted uranium munitions, now all of a sudden claims it cannot ignore human suffering. There is a little bit of hypocrisy here. And my concern is this this plays into the existing Russia phobia that's already present in the West and in the United States. So I, I don't like what McDonald's is doing. That's the last I'll say of it. All right. 800-848-9222. There's two open lines. If you want to comment on house sharing, you can. You want to comment on McDonald's, you can. You want to talk gerrymandering, you can. You want to talk about the idea of Curtis for Congress and de Blasio for Congress, you can. You want to talk about my interview with Tony Woodleaf. Whatever the case may be, now's the time. 800-848-WABC. That's 800 848 Nine two two two. I'm going to go to people in the order that they've been holding the longest. Uh, John is in New Jersey. Hello, John. Hey, what's up, Frank? Nice to talk to you again. Thanks. You too. Um, so, I uh, I I work with uh, people every day, and I see about like 75 different customers six days a week, and I can't tell you how how many of us have the same views on politics on on just about everything. So. I do think that we're more alike than the media portrays us. Oh, I, I completely agree with you. You know, when I, I try to get different groups of people together all the time, and, you know, when you get when you get two groups of people together, you know, very rarely are they diametrically opposed on even the most polarizing issues. You know, um, you, you talk illegal immigration. You get the most hardline conservative and the most uh, left-wing liberal – and I don't hear either one of them. I'm not forgetting about what they say on radio or in the public sphere. I don't hear any one of them say, well, we really need to deport everybody. Uh, I also don't hear either one of them say, let's just have open borders and let everybody in. So usually the, the truth on those polarizing issues in the minds of regular ordinary Americans is somewhere in between. Yeah. And then, um, I was going to ask you another question. Um, I feel like, uh, yeah, communism in in its truest form was supposed to be like a utopia, but everyone who's tried it has turned it into something else. Um, don't you think there's enough people like-minded uh, today that uh, we can somehow actually make like true communism work? Where like, if I'm an artist, I'll do the drawing and stuff. You're a doctor, you want to be a doctor, you want to be a farmer, whatever you want to do, you do and you contribute. Is there a way we could start that? Or? Well, I mean, yes. I mean, you could start. You could have a, a small collective and uh, and and like do it there. Communist, you know. Well, yeah. No. Well, I mean, that is socialism. Now, um, again, there's a lot of different types of socialism, and when we talk about communism, that usually we're referring to usually Marxism or what what Marx referred to as scientific socialism. Now, no country that labels itself as communist, including the five communist countries that are out there today, China, Vietnam, Laos, Cuba, and North Korea, no country has really followed the model that Marx thought would work. Marx said 
that um, you couldn't really go from a capitalist system directly to a communist system. What Marx said was there would have to be a lengthy transition process of a socialist um, process between capitalism and communism. And um, the, the countries that have tried it really didn't have the kind of conditions that Marx outlined. Now, uh, as far as what you referred to, you used the word utopia. There's a very specific type of of socialism called utopian socialism. Now, that was from a novel essentially by Sir Thomas More, who it, he kind of lost his head when he was uh, at loggerheads with King Henry VIII. But um, you, utopian socialism, there are countries where some version of socialism has worked pretty well. Um, a lot of people say that uh, Nether- the Netherlands has some form of socialism, and that works pretty well. You know, yeah, but there's always people in power like that. that- but yeah, you no, you're right. You, uh, you're you're right. Look, um, so I'm all for experimenting with all sorts of different types of uh, of government. And um, look, I think if you can try it on a small level, like a commune, that's probably your best bet for trying to get utopian socialism working again. Thank you, John. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Tom in Brooklyn. Hello, Tom. Morning, Frank. Um... Mr. Oh, uh, I just want to let you know that I, I live in a, I'm, I live in a room in some guy's house. Really oh, you nice do? Old man. All right. And now, yeah, do, do you do that for financial reasons? Yeah, I, I got separated from my wife. I needed a place to go, and I, and I was working on the block in this place, and we talked, and I, I just rented the place. It was great. It's great. I love it. All right. Well, good. I'm glad that's working out for you. What yeah. do you think is driving this trend towards shared homes? Um. Well, for me, it was definitely financial. I couldn't afford an apartment right now on my salary. I mean, on right, my, right. So I'm you're in the same boat that vet. Philippe is in. Yeah, I'm a disabled vet. And I, I only get a certain amount of money, and I give money to my family. So, you know. Anyway, I do want I do want to comment about Mr. Woodley's uh, uh, book and what he said. Is that all right? Well, yeah, please go ahead. Mr. Woodley said that there's some talk about uh, racial. You know, a little less talk about. I mean, sorry. <clears throat> he said that there was less. Racial division than we might think, and uh, I too believe that there is less, much less division and disagreement between races. You know, I have a few friends, and occasionally politics does come up and in the conversation. My surprise, you know, they were open to getting rid of a lot of uh, feckless politicians and so forth, and that included Biden. You know, and we talked about how democratic policies were hurting America and not helping, and they were looking at the uh, the Republicans in the congressional and the Senate races. And, uh, some of my friends were very well-informed, more than me, uh, and I've been listening to them diligently and, and see how the policies are hurting, hurting them, you know. And um, we spoke and we spoke how the media is propagating a lot of BS and division, you know. Um, we can see, they can see through it, I can see through the lies, the misinformation, the disinformation, and, and, and some good dialogue, you know. I've been, I've been learning a lot, you know. Um, Mr., I mean, I'm, I'm looking forward to reading this guy, Mr. Uh, Woodleaf's uh, book. Uh, can you let, just tell me his first name? Was it Tony, Tony or Tony? Tony, T-O-N-Y. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to get that book because it sounds really good. Yeah, and it's short. Yeah, and it's short. You can read oh, it quickly. It? And um, I think um, I think you're doing, by just having these conversations, and I'm looking to start sort of um, a, a group, maybe a monthly meeting of folks to meet in person to have similar conversations about 
government and about the nature of government. Uh, what you're doing is exactly what he prescribes, is that that's the first step, is really talking to people and getting the community engaged with one another again. But I think you're going to enjoy the book, Tom. After you read it, right. uh, give me a call. Let me know what you think. Yes, sir. Right. And, and by the way, I don't agree with everything in this book. There are some things I don't agree with. But I think on the whole, this book is just really wonderful. And like I said, it's short, so it doesn't really cost you much in the way of time, if you don't like it. 800-848-WABC. Barbara is in Pennsylvania, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Barbara, you got a big election today. Are you voting? Of course I am. Well, can I ask who you're voting for? Yes, I'm voting for Connor Lamb. Oh, okay. And then uh, is, there, is there a Democratic primary for governor also? Oh, I'm voting for Shapiro. Shapiro. Okay, so there you go. What, um, what do you think is going to happen? I mean, I think Connor Lamb, if he were to be the Democrat... He would be um, the prohibitive favorite in the general election, but I'm hearing that it's going to be this other guy, Fetterman, that's yeah, likely to it, win. It may be Fetterman. I'd vote for either one, but I would prefer Connor Lamb. All right. Well, I, I uh, again, I defer to the people that live in the state, but uh, I like Connor Lamb also. What's on your mind this morning? Well, my thing is about the gerrymandering in New York. I'm glad the court, the Democratic, mostly Democratic Supreme Court. Um, um, uh, well, Court of Appeals. Court of Appeals. Yeah. No, yeah. No, the Supreme Court. Well, so the Supreme Court it's, was one judge who was Republican, and then um, it went to the appellate division of the Supreme Court. Those were all Democrats, and then it went to the Court of Appeals, and the Court of Appeals ruled that uh, they, the lines would be thrown out. Right. So I like that. But, however, do you know, because of gerrymandering... Democrats have to win about 10% more votes nationally to even be even with Republicans in Congress. I didn't know that, but I can't say that I'm surprised, and I think that's awful. I'm against gerrymandering when Republicans do it or Democrats, absolutely. I am, too. And in Pennsylvania, we wrote, we, we did ours again, you know, so that it's not gerrymandered. California has done it. New York has done it. I think New Jersey done it. Ohio did it. It was a referendum. And the um, Republican Party in the assembly, I think it's called, they just refused to do the maps. Well, that's awful. I mean, weren't those maps, um, didn't the court in Ohio also throw out the initial maps there? Um, they, they ha they're not changing it. I think they and then they won't change it. Interesting. Well, yeah. I, look, uh, I am very clear, Barbara. I'm against gerrymandering in all its forms, whoever's doing it, wherever it exists. And uh, and Republicans who are cheering DeSantis, on this. DeSantis is trying to do it in Florida. I know. I know. And that's uh, outrageous as far as I'm concerned. Barbara, thanks for the call. And uh, a lot of Republicans that are cheering on this decision in New York today should keep in mind that it was the Supreme Court in a very closely divided ruling written by Chief Justice Roberts, that allows gerrymandering to go on. Now, the reason that this case got thrown out in New York is because they ruled that this was a violation of the state constitution, not the federal constitution. But I think gerrymandering is atrocious, whatever party is doing it. 800-848-WABC. Johnny is in Garden City. Hello, Johnny. Hey, Frank, in regards to um, you mentioned about uh, McDonald's pulling out, pulling out of um, Russia, you know, it's a little bit of optics. They want to show they're in solidarity with the rest of the world and so forth. But as far as like uh, another component, it puts pressure on Putin. The people now, you know, are getting pulled back from things they enjoy. 
and you know, it'll see things more clearly that you know the world's against them, and uh, it's just and it might actually it might create a civil war. Who knows? But it pushes back on onto the government in certain ways. Well, that's always been the argument uh, in favor of sanctions for U.S. sanctions and things like that. (laughs) People would always say, oh, we have to have sanctions in Iraq or or, uh, whatever country, Russia, because that'll cause the people to rise up because they'll get tired of starving and not being able to get all these goods. But I don't think it works. I think when it comes to both sanctions and the both government sanctions and companies like McDonald's and Starbucks pulling out of countries like Russia, I think what's more likely to happen is if people are unhappy, the authoritarian leaders in these countries, not just Russia, but since we're talking about Russia, let's make it Russia, um, they get to point to the big bad United States and blame the United States for the suffering and the unhappiness of their people. I think on some level, it actually causes these people to rally more behind these anti-American regimes. But you bring up a good point, Johnny, and I get that it's that there's a lot of optics involved. Thank you. Uh, Lenny is in Myrtle Beach. Hello, Lenny. Hey, Frank. Um, you know, mostly in Russia and, and, and around the world, McDonald's a franchise. That's right. So, yeah. So when they pull out after three months, they're franchise. What's really changing? The corporation doesn't own those. The individuals own own the franchise, and they're mostly Russian. So it's really not that big a deal. Well, uh, you're right, uh, and that's the other thing here. I think it is a lot of window dressing. I I, I think you're I think you're I think you're right about that. I mean, uh, well, you're right because you said that. Yeah, and, and it's window it's window dressing. Yeah, and I, I, I thought, oh, I'm go sorry. Ahead. Go no, 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 sorry, Galani. Go ahead. As far as um. You know, the gerrymandering in New York, as you said, it was, uh, you know, it was the appellate. Barbara doesn't know what she's talking about. But well, I mean, she doesn't so, live here. In fairness, she lives in Pennsylvania. You know, you well, cut her some she brought up New York. Yeah. But, you know, it's so outrageous in New York. And it's every judge on there was appointed by a Democrat and they overturned it because it was so outrageous. They had the North Shore of Suffolk, North Shore of Nassau and with the Bronx. Oh, yeah. And, and um, Sunset Park. In with Staten Island. And I got news right. for you. The people You're in Sunset Park and Park Slope, they don't want Staten Island's congressman representing them any more than someone on the South Shore of Staten Island wants to be represented by someone from Sunset Park. Right. So you're supposed to have people who have somewhat interests. Right. And they don't. And, and and it had to it had to go. But thank you. You were you were on point tonight. Thanks, Lenny. Appreciate you listening. Thanks for calling. Let me squeeze in at least one or two more quick calls here before we get to Jeremy Corbell. David in the Bronx, I, I really enjoyed hearing uh, Michael Smirkanish respond to your tweet on air Saturday morning. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I, I that's right. I figured you might have heard that. Um quick comment on McDonald's. The last caller kind of stole my thunder on that, but um, you know, all their supplies, the burgers, the, the vegetables, everything, the fries, all that stuff is produced in Russia, and it will still be available, just have a different name. So McDonald's is basically doing this because of the sanctions. It's going to be harder for them to get money transferred from mm. their Russian businesses to here. So nothing's going to change. I mean, and I agree with you about sanctions, because look at what happens with Cuba. We've had sanctions with Cuba for over 60 years, and it hasn't done anything, and they to, to rally the people against us. 
Right. I I think the only country where you can maybe make a case that sanctions played a role in changing the government's behavior was uh, with apartheid in South Africa. But beyond that, if you look at the last hundred years of sanction attempts by countries, not just the United States, but other countries as well, it's they have very little effect. I mean, look at what's going on in North Korea right now. There's every sanction in the world against North Korea, and they're, they're just as authoritarian as ever. No, you're right. They don't work. And, and let me just say one quick thing about the South Africa. You know, Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, and I'm sure, I don't know if you're old enough to remember this, but they had a policy, it was called constructive engagement, that they wanted to do instead of sanctions, where they said, well, if we trade with them and we have our products there, it'll help, uh, you know, li- make people more liberal, whatever. I- I'm actually inclined to think that's what we, sh- we should be doing with Cuba and places like that. I think the more contact we have with people in like that, the more the more they'll want freedom because they'll see what other people are living like. I uh, completely agree with you, David. I got to tell you, I, I think we're we're maybe for the first time in a while on exactly the same page. Eight hundred eight four eight WABC. Mark is in Garden City. Hello, Mark. Hi, Frank. Hey, Frank. I wanted to ask you when you mentioned earlier that you had spoken personally to Curtis about going to Congress. What was Curtis's response? Well, so I'll, I'll, I'll share this with you. Curtis and I had talked about him running for this seat five months ago, and um, he wasn't quite ready to pull the trigger because of some things that he had going on professionally and politically and because he wasn't sure what the district lines were going to look like. But I will tell you, I came away from my conversation with Curtis thinking that he was um, leaning in favor of running. Wow. You know, if that did happen, though, I would miss him broadcasting on the weekends, especially when he does the conspiracy theories about you. It's (laughs) it's the funniest thing in the world. Well, maybe that's why I'm trying so hard to get him to Congress so that he doesn't do that anymore. (laughs) Good point. Thank you very much, Mark. Speaking of conspiracies, a lot of folks thought that UFOs were a conspiracy theory. Well, today, a lot of the people that, like me, who have been talking about UFOs or what they now call UAPs for a long time, I think we got a little vindication coming our way because Congress is holding the first hearings on this in 50 years. We'll talk about it with Jeremy Corbell straight ahead. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. The Other Side of Midnight presents The Midnight Files. Midnight in the desert Shooting stars across the sky This magical journey will take us on a ride Filled with the longing, searching for the truth Will we make it till tomorrow? Will the sun shine on you? This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Since this show has begun, even before that, I have been fascinated at what we are seeing in this country 
when it comes to investigating what we used to call UFOs, what now is generally referred to as UAPs. Because in the last five years, in terms of public disclosure, we have seen something that used to be relegated to the domain of late night radio shows like this one, science fiction magazines and dime store novels become front page news on the, for the New York Times, covered seriously by 60 Minutes, Fox News, CNN, and taken seriously by some of the most respected politicians on both sides of the aisle in the whole country. Well, today is a banner day, not just in the history of exploring UAPs, but in the history of America. Because today, the United States Congress is going to have its first hearings in over a half a century exploring UAPs. What took so long? And what are we actually going to find out? A lot of people who are skeptics don't think we're going to find out anything. A lot of people that are believers that there's something beyond uh, this earth and we've seen visits from whatever that something is to this earth. They, a lot of them think we're not going to find out anything because they think that the Pentagon is going to continue to stonewall. Well, a fella that has been integral to this story getting out there is Jeremy Corbell. He is a, an investigative journalist and a filmmaker who did a fascinating documentary about Bob Lazar and Area 51. Uh, Bob Lazar, Area 51 and Flying Saucers. It's a documentary that you absolutely should see. And he has published a lot of the UFO footage or the UAP footage, which is going to be integral to today's hearing. He is very much into band right now, hasn't slept at all. I'm thrilled that he's made a few minutes for us. Jeremy, thanks so much for joining me on the radio and congratulations. Uh, this hearing is very much uh, uh, a, a testament to the incredible work that you've been doing these last few years. Thanks, Frank. It, it's a benchmark moment, and there was so many people involved. In fact, the general public, even UFO Twitter, just people that talked about this and pushed this forward, they're the real heroes of this. Because the whole point is that it was because of public pressure that we're seeing what we're seeing today. And just to back up for your audience a little bit, you know, skeptics or people that just don't know about it, don't be four cents short of a nickel. Educate yourself on the UFO issue. This is one of the greatest mysteries of humankind. And what was once science fiction is now science fact. Every day, human knowledge expands just a little bit. And tomorrow is really exciting. Or actually today. I haven't slept a lot. Today. Yeah, I, I get it. Believe me. Yeah, it's really exciting because it's the first time in over 50 years that we're having open congressional hearings about the UFO phenomenon engaging planet Earth. This is real. This is not science fiction. Your government has told you. Witnesses around the world, hundreds of thousands of people have told you. But now it's official, and we're having hearings about it for the first time in 50 years. Testimony from two of the top defense intelligence officials, the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security, and the Deputy Director of Naval Intelligence. Now, I have hope that they're not just sent there by their bosses. That they're going to tell us something. But if they don't, public is going to push forward and we're going to get more information. This is a benchmark moment. Don't, do not get that wrong. It's a special day. 
Jeremy, you have published a lot of these videos, and uh, the director of national intelligence in their report last year, they've essentially said that at least 144 of these sightings are, they can't explain. I think they found some sort of explanation for one of them, and 144 of the military sightings, which is to say nothing of the civilian sightings, they have no explanation for. Now, a lot of people have tried to offer alternative explanations to uh, what these these objects are, what these devices are, which come up not only to the naked eye, but on radar and have successfully evaded some of the best military pilots in the world. One of the theories that some people bring up is that maybe this is a foreign government, an adversarial government, Russia, China. Do you see that as a possibility at all? It's incredible to me. What we're talking about is cognitive dissonance. We're talking about people being afraid to let go of a worldview for a true worldview. So sure, we have to look at every possibility. But last June, the office of the director of national intelligence, it did put out, like you mentioned, what they called a preliminary assessment. They analyzed 144 military UFO incidents, but only going back to the famous 2004 with the Tic Tac UFO, the most famous UFO case of all time now. And they only found one, one that was able to be explained. The rest of them were not. And this is not your average Joe. This is our military intelligence and defense systems looking at trying to see what is flying with impunity in our restricted airspace. These UFOs, these pesky UFOs, what they did decide and they did say in the report is that these do represent physical objects. We're talking about machines. Now, these machines, these UFOs in the sky, as we're talking about, they also concluded specifically that this was not secret U.S. technology. So whosoever machines these are that can turn on and off our nuclear weapons, they are not ours. They, they need more information, but they anybody involved, if you speak with them like I do, these are not part of a foreign collection program. This is not, UFOs are not indicative of some major technological advancement by a potential adversary. Remember, UFOs have been reported by you. They've been reported by citizens since the beginning of recorded human history. Our military just now has the technology and the toys to look at this stuff, to analyze it, to have corroborative video evidence. And that is precisely, precisely what I did was I was able to acquire, obtain, and then release military-filmed UFO footage confirmed by our Pentagon itself, and it was corroborative video evidence. This is off of 2019 off the coast of California. Corroborative video evidence, not just thermal imagery or infrared imagery, which the eye can't see, but also just normal footage off the deck of the USS Omaha, as well as radar data. This is the kind of case that I've been looking forward to as, as a kid, like give me the evidence, show me the evidence. Well, I obtained it and I released it and the Pentagon confirmed it. And here we are today where everybody involved in wanting to know about the UFO phenomenon, what is this about? Who made these machines? Who's piloting them? Where are they from? What is their intent? These are the bigger questions. Now, none of this is gonna probably be answered at the congressional hearings today.
None of this. However, we've got people on the stand. We have people testifying. And if they tried to obfuscate, they're going to run into problems. And, and, and look at it this way. Representative Carson, who put this all together, his specific quote was, this hearing is about examining steps that the Pentagon can take to reduce stigma. Now, why would he say that? Reduce stigma about UFOs. It's because, honestly, my job should be obsolete. Mm. I should not be a go-between between pilots and drone pilots and getting footage that's classified at times and then trying to figure out if I can put it out and put it up the chain of command. I shouldn't be involved. That chain of information should be strong within our own military because we need a technological advantage. With a technological advantage, we win. Everybody is looking for UFO exploitation programs, trying to reverse engineer these things to gain an advantage. And don't take my word for it. Listen to what's going on right now in the public world, in Congress and Senate. It's amazing. So secrecy, and this is another quote from Representative Carson, secrecy can serve as an obstacle to solving the UFO mystery. So this Senate hearing is to dissolve the stigma and the secrecy surrounding the UFO mystery so we can try to get to the bottom of this. Uh, which, if people just tuning in, we're talking with Jeremy Corbell. Uh, he is the editor over at ExtraordinaryBeliefs.com. Uh, it's uh, an investigative film series which has some great stuff. Check it out, Extraordinary, ExtraordinaryBeliefs.com. Jeremy, you sort of stole my thunder in terms of um, asking what if they don't say anything uh, that's noteworthy today. A lot of folks are skeptical. A lot of folks believe that the government actually knows a great deal already, and they don't think that a couple of congressmen asking some senior Pentagon officials questions uh, is going to lead to a whole lot of truth being revealed. But what you're saying and what uh, what uh, Carson is saying, the uh, Indiana Democrat that's chairing these hearings, is that even if they don't say anything, just by having these con- these kind of hearings take place in Congress, that will, in the minds of the public, make it so that uh, this is not the domain of uh, toothless drunks in the middle of nowhere or, or grifters or late-night talk show hosts. It's a mainstream issue that's worthy of discussion and exploration. Look, the public started this, and the public, we're going to finish this. This is representative government. We have Ron Moultrie, who's the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security. Maybe his boss told him to be there. He's going to be there testifying. We have Scott Bray, Deputy Director of Naval Intelligence. These guys are in a position to know if they try to stymie the process, if they try to obfuscate, well, the same thing that put them in those chairs are going to bring them right back into those chairs. It's going to be the public and the public interest that pushes this forward and demands our representative government tell us the truth about UFOs. Now, surely there is going to be Right after the public congressional hearing, there's going to be a private closed-door congressional hearing in the classified level. That is happening, and I do agree with that. We keep secrets, we do it well, and we should continue to do that. But the basic premise, are we alone in the universe? And if we're not alone, which is statistically improbable, are they visiting here? And who are they? Where do they come from? What can we learn from them? The world we are now living in has changed. We have moonwalked from Z to A backwards. We are now living in a different world. The the world our children are going to grow up in is a world 
that acknowledges the UFO presence and is trying to investigate and understand what that presence means to humanity. I'm not trying to be dramatic like War of the Worlds. This is real. UFOs are as real as the nose on your face, and you've been told. And and if you don't know that yet, you haven't been paying attention. Uh, Let me end with this, Jeremy, and uh, I'm going to be very eager to see what comes out of this hearing today, and I hope you'll come back in the future and help us uh, break this down. What's next from here? Uh, Let's say these hearings reveal very little or nothing, or let's say they reveal something. What's the next step in terms of congressional exploration of this, in terms of public exploration for this? What's your hope of what, what happens a week, two weeks, six months, a year from now? Well, let's not forget scientific exploration of this because part of this hearing is to reduce the stigma so we can get our brightest minds. Look, scientists should be salivating about this. Neil deGrasse Tyson should put down his hubris stick and start looking at the evidence. It is overwhelming. So what's going to happen next? What's happening next is public opinion is going to show everybody how important this is to us to understand our place in the universe. What world do we live in? What does this mean? So the next step is going to be getting people to come forward who have direct witness testimony to provide, and also people that have contributed on the government level and the civilian level about studying this for their lifetimes. So, for example, Commander David Fravor, the man in 2004 who engaged and chased a UFO for the United States military. He would be a great witness. Uh, Commander Chad Underwood, the man that filmed the Tic Tac UFO off the coast of California. He would be a great witness. Ryan Graves, he, off the uh, 2015 off the East Coast, also was dealing with the same UFO phenomenon that was getting in, in, involved with some of our missions where we couldn't deploy. And then the great Lou Elizondo, former head of ATIP, Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program. He would make a great witness. I'm going to name a few more. Dr. Colm Kelleher and Dr. James Lakatsky. These two individuals ran the real UFO-funded government program called AWSAP, Advanced Weapon System Application Program. That is now acknowledged. There has been no UFO program acknowledged since 1969 in the closing of Project Blue Book, but that was acknowledged. Now, the New York Times, sorry, New York, they got it wrong. They named the wrong program. The real UFO program was called OSAP, again, Advanced Aerospace Weapon System Application Program. So those two people that I mentioned, Dr. Colin Kelleher, Dr. James Lukatsky, they can speak upon this, and so can the head of ATIP, the director of ATIP, Who's Lou Elizondo? We should have these individuals testifying in open briefings to Congress, crack the books open on UFOs, and let's get down to the truth. UFOs are real. They're from somewhere. Somebody makes their machines. Somebody pilots them. What can we learn? Where are they from? Do they just like our cupcakes, our kimonos, and our top hats? Are they visiting because of tourism? (laughs) Or is there something else going on? These are the big questions. Jeremy. And the scientific community should engage this. It's always a treat to talk with you. Thank you so much for the time and uh, for the great work that you've done on this. I'll look forward to our next conversation. 
Thank you so much, Frank, for covering this all of these years. Please keep it up. It's important. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to give me a call, 1-800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. I'm Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. The Monkees here on the other side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Um, we usually do the mail here, but uh, we only have about a minute. So uh, we'll do the mail after the top of the hour. I'll give us an opportunity to take a couple of quick calls on my interview with Jeremy Corbell. If you want to comment, now's the time. 800-848-WABC. By the way, if you want to email me, uh, we will read your emails and snail mail on the air next hour. Uh, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. If you email me, by the way, expect that email to be read on the air. Don't be surprised if I read it. Devin and Yonkers, got about 40 seconds. It's all yours. Okay. The United States, the deepest part of the United States military, has been using Nikola Tesla's technology of electromagnetics to create anti-gravity, and they have been flying machines and we've all been duped into yapping about aliens this has nothing to do with aliens and everything to do with deep state darth vaders and i'm not a kook google it nikola tesla's technology they seized it in 1943 and they've been doing this behind our backs because they don't want us to know that energy is free Devin, thank you uh until next hour keep asking questions this is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Good morning, everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Coming up in about a half hour, we're going to talk with Martha Byrne. Uh, Martha Byrne is a very famous Emmy Award winning soap opera star. And she happens to be married to a gentleman named Michael McMahon. No, not the Staten Island District Attorney, but a retired NYPD sergeant who about a year and a half ago was arrested by the FBI and accused of being in cahoots with the Chinese Communist Party. Now, she believes that her her husband is being unfairly targeted. We're going to talk with her about what her husband has been through and where we're going from here. But uh, a lot of people that are soap fans uh, are really excited about that. But never a big soap opera fan, although um, um, pro wrestling is just like a soap opera. So that's my version of a soap opera. Hey, speaking of television, I finally finished watching the most recent series of the most recent season of Picard on Paramount Plus. I am a Star Trek fan, as you know, and I liked it. I liked it, but I didn't love it. So um, I don't want to give too much of the plot away because if you're a Star Trek fan, it is worth seeing the most recent season 
pretty much because of the acting and the characters that are in this show and the interactions between the characters. It's great to see. And again, I don't want to spoil anything, so I'm not going to give any plot points away. But it's great to see Brent Spiner, who played Data, interact with Patrick Stewart on screen again. It's great to see Patrick Stewart and Whoopi Goldberg interact on screen again. Jerry Ryan, uh, she just lights up any screen that she's in. And in addition to being such a beautiful woman, she's a wonderful actress. She's great on this show. Patrick Stewart and um, John DeLancey, seeing their interaction with one another is really special. And, you know, it's funny. The the two actors have as much history together as their two characters do, Patrick Stewart and Q. And there's some very tender moments between the two and some very comedic moments and some very heated moments, some very dramatic moments. So I think it's worth watching just for moments like that. Overall, though, I didn't love this series. Uh, there were aspects of it that I thought were way too PC and look, Star Trek's always been very progressive um, from when it was on in the 60s, and I don't have an issue with that. It's when they hit you over the head with this PC stuff that I have a little bit of a problem with. The story, eh, the story was not great. There were so many aspects of this story that I didn't find made sense. I ended up texting my brothers and my, my dad, who all are Star Trek fans, and I said, well, explain it. Wait, wait a minute. Why did – what was this person who looked like Picard's Romulan friend? Who was she again? Why did she look like Picard's Romulan friend? And my dad said, oh, no, no, no. I think that's the same person. I said, I don't think that's the same person. And then my brother Nick said, well, none of it makes sense. Why bother trying to figure out? None of it makes sense. There's nothing about this series that makes sense. And then he proceeds to list a dozen things – that are that made no logical sense in this most recent season. And then, even previous to that, he mentions another half dozen things that are not consistent with the Star Trek storyline. I hate that stuff. They call it a retcon. But Star Trek fans take this stuff really seriously. Um, they've always taken pains to be consistent with the Star Trek storyline. And I realize... That you're dealing with five series and whatever, 12 movies at this point, whatever, six, seven, yeah, 12, 13, I don't know. But um, I realize there's a lot of history to keep track of. Tough. Tough. You, um, you, you want to make money using that Star Trek brand and that Star Trek name, you keep track of it. And you don't have stuff that's inconsistent with it. Otherwise, stop making shows. So, um, and my biggest complaint, and I've said this before, is that it's very lacking in original ideas. Almost everything that's been, that I saw in this most recent series, Picard, has been done before. Now, what's interesting about this series and the last season of Picard was that um, unlike what Star Trek usually is, it's, you know, usually Star Trek, Star Trek The Next Generation, Star Trek Voyager, Deep Space Nine to some extent, you know, each episode is self-contained. They, all the characters get together, they have a problem, they fix the problem, and then they move on to the next week. Now, the exception was Deep Space Nine when you had the whole war with the Dominion, but that was five or six seasons into the show. And even within that season and within that lengthy story arc, a lot of the episodes were self-contained. So I, um, I, 
Picard, this latest season, it's not like that. It's basically like a little mini series. And it's nice on some extent. I haven't seen the new season, the new series of Star Trek. I believe it's called Strange New Worlds. I haven't seen that, but I'm told that the episodes in that are, for lack of a better description, self-contained. That each one is its own story. So, uh, so there's that. There's that. Now, if you're a Star Trek fan, I have to tell you, it's still worth watching just to see Patrick Stewart as as Jean Luc Picard again. And again. They spend all this time going back into Patrick Stewart's life, uh, Jean-Luc Picard's life. It doesn't make sense. It didn't make sense. And the problems that they claim to be depicting uh, that are rooted in Patrick Stewart or uh, Jean-Luc Picard's childhood, they, they didn't really seem to hinder him in the areas that the show makes it out. And by the way... Not to mention, even though they spent all this time on uh, Picard's family life, not to mention the Picard's brother, who was a character on Next Generation. So it's stuff like that that they didn't include that I made me not like it as much as I would have liked to have liked it. As I said, though, if you're a Star Trek fan, worth seeing. It's only eight or nine, maybe it's nine episodes. It's worth seeing. All right, uh, without further ado, it is time to take a look at those of you that have sent me a little bit of mail. Letters, oh, we get letters. We get your letters every day. Mailman, mailman, mail today. Reach right in and pull one out. Those letters, I love those letters. Here is some snail mail, and if you ever want to send me some snail mail, uh, you can do so uh, by sending... You know, I- I'm not going to give the post office box. I'm going to just give our address here. You could send it to uh, WABC Radio, Attention Frank Morano, 800 3rd Avenue, um, New York, New York, 10023, uh, second floor. Because, uh, you know, it takes too long to get the mail that people are sending to the P.O. box. So I have to wait for somebody to go get it and bring it to me. It's a whole long process. Before I know it, uh, Before I, I, by the time I get this mail, it's six months later. So send it to 800 3rd Avenue, my attention, and I'll get it. Here is a, a pair of postcards from Henry in Manhattan. One dated April 12th, one dated April 14th. April 12th. Here's an idea for a contest from among your listeners. How about design a logo for the other side of midnight, and after that contest is done... Design a slightly somewhat different logo for Sliwa's show. P.S. If I could look over the submissions, I'd really appreciate it. Thanks. Now, why would you get to look over the submissions? Wouldn't that be more the kind of thing that the marketing and promotions department would deal with? Now, we do have a logo. If you look at WABCRadioStore.com, if you look at our shirts and our jackets, we do have a very neat logo. I think Molly was one of the key designers of this. Um... It's basically like a truck stop logo. It's really neat. I, I really like it. And then this is a postcard from the same individual on April 14th. Dear Frank, yep. The more I think about it, the more it's clear to me your radio show needs a logo. And a different one for Curtis's week weekend version with its very slightly different title. I suggest entrants also identify themselves by age, gender, and ethnic background. And at least with online vote, whether each... You know, uh, whether each category, I can't make out exactly all the handwriting, but 
There you go. Uh, so that's a suggestion. But we already have a logo, so I'm not going to do that. All right. To the email we go. Eric writes, subject, geopolitics. Hi, Frank. If Russia attacked Turkey from behind, would Greece help? Aha. Uh-huh. Very funny. Uh, you're a walking pun, Mr. Eric. Congratulations. Um, Tom writes, on the subject of new congressional, new New York congressional districts, when the Staten Island district is made problematic for Maliotakis, you call it, quote, trying to gerrymander Nicole out of existence. But when an Upper West Side Democratic district is redrawn to cause problems for Nadler and Maloney or a redrawn Brooklyn district pits two black congresspersons against each other, it's a beautiful thing to be old. Your euphoria for the outlook of for New York Republicans belies your claim of being an independent. I would like to see the end of gerrymandering nationally, but what New York is doing is unilateral disarmament by the Democrats. The stakes of who controls the House are extraordinarily high and eclipse the value of more fairly drawn to maps in one state, while all the red states continue to gerrymander like there's no tomorrow which there won't be if the party of Marjorie Taylor Greene, Marjorie misspelled, by the way, Jim Jordan, Matt Gates, and Mo Brooks control the next Congress. couple of things here. Um, one, I-, I wish I could, you know, all the Republicans think I'm a closet Democrat, and all the Democrats think I'm a closet Republican. If that doesn't mean that I am really a true independent, I don't know what does. Second, um, the reason I was perturbed about the gerrymandering, the attempted gerrymandering of Nicole's district was because it was exactly that gerrymandering. There was it, they went out of their way to draw a district that disadvantaged Nicole and her constituents simply because Nicole happened to be a Republican. Um, additionally, when you lose one congressional seat, obviously you're going to have some congressmen that are in the same district. So, I mean, I mean, I'm not euphoric over Nadler and Maloney going against one another because all of a sudden the Republicans are going to win. Look, in that district and in the 10th district, which Nadler's also welcome to run in, the Democrats are going to win in both. So it's not as if I'm pressing for a partisan advantage. Now, it's true the Republicans are much more competitive under this map than under the maps that were considered unconstitutional. Um, that's good. That's a win for the voters. Um, I I mean, we want competitive. I don't know what we want. I want competitive elections. I want the Democrats and the Republicans and ideally some third party candidates to have a shot at winning every congressional seat. So, um, as far as the Democrat, your terming of this as the Democrats unilaterally disarming, No, the Democrats didn't unilaterally disarm. The Democrats tried to cheat. There was a constitutional amendment approved by both houses of the legislature and by the voters 10 years ago. And that added an amendment prohibiting gerrymandering to the New York State Constitution. These court of appeals judges, they didn't express a political view to their credit, even though they were all appointed by Democrats. They just went with the law. They didn't express a view about whether gerrymandering was good for the Democrats, good for the Republicans, and whether it was uh, meritorious or not. 
they said, look, this is a violation of the New York State Constitution. And look, they didn't they could have thrown out the courts could have thrown out the New York State Assembly maps as well, which I believe are gerrymandered. They didn't because under their view of this redistricting amendment, the assembly district lines are um, the assembly district lines are appropriate. I don't agree with that, but it is. And as far as, um, you know, the Republican states gerrymandering like there's no tomorrow, um, that's not true. In North Carolina, the state Supreme Court struck down maps that were drawn by Republicans. So you have courts in both states that are throwing out plans by one party or another. I think the Florida maps that DeSantis was trying to push may end up getting thrown out. So, um, you know, I mean, I'm against gerrymandering wherever it exists. And for you to say the stakes are too high, so we have to keep gerrymandering just so the Democrats can win the House, that to me is the worst kind of blatant partisanship that you can have. To set aside your principles, or at least my principles, to set aside one's principles just because you want a a perceived political benefit, that doesn't fly with me, personally. Max writes, good morning, Frank. Curtis promised me a hat a few weeks ago for winning his trivia question. I still have not received it. Could you please help? By the way, the phone screener asked me a lot of personal questions. Really? Like date of birth. I hope my credit info is not being misused. Well, Max, I don't know how to break it to you, but uh, that was all just a plot by Curtis and me to get your personal information and to get your credit info. And uh, Curtis and I are both in the process of stealing your identity right now. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I mean, sorry, you should have had LifeLock. I guess that's the best I could offer. Um Peter writes, uh, hi, Frank. Last month, Dr. Turi was on your show and predicted nuclear issues on May 16th. Like so many of his predictions, this one came true. And he sends me an article, Vladimir Putin sending nuclear-capable missiles towards the Finnish border. You know, uh, I'm going to try and get Dr. Turi on again either this week or next week. Michelle writes on the subject of Curtis. Keep him out of politics. You know damn well he belongs on the radio. What are you afraid of? He'll beat you in the ratings? Michelle, let me assure you. First of all, I want everybody on the station to do (laughs) as well as we all can do uh, and to have the highest ratings possible because the better the station does, the better we all do. So I want Curtis to do well in the ratings, and he is doing well. Not as well as me, but he's doing well. Um, Denise writes, this is from yesterday. Hi, Frank. I can't understand why you and others on the right... See, immediately, she thinks I'm on the right. I can't understand why you and others on the right refuse to factor in semi-automatic weapons, high-capacity guns, etc., into the goal of stopping the mass shootings. I don't get it. I believe the Second Amendment mentions a well-armed militia, not individuals toting around muskets. Am I wrong? We all want the same thing, to be to keep people and our loved ones safe. We can't figure our way out of this. No understanding of a person's mental aberrations will do any good if we continue to allow these human slaughter weapons. I do not understand why an intelligent and responsible person like yourself would fail to advocate for banning these slaughter weapons. Anyhow, off to WQXR. Denise, first of all, the Second Amendment says a well-regulated militia, not a well-armed militia. Second, I was for the assault weapons ban. 
just like a lot of uh, conservatives, including George W. Bush. And Donald Trump used to be for the assault weapons ban. I don't know if he still is, but I am all for banning these assault weapons. What I said in the context of yesterday's conversation was that clearly that's not going to happen. So let's have a discussion that does not involve the progressive solution of more gun control and the conservative solution of making sure everyone has a concealed weapon. Because clearly neither of those things is going to happen right now. So let's talk about other causes and, more importantly, other solutions. Uh, Anthony from Gravesend writes, Hi, Frank. I really enjoy the show. I tune in when I wake up at 3.30 for work and listen while I'm driving to Long Island City. Anyway, I had a thought this morning. Doesn't Tom from the Bronx sound like Floyd from the Barber, Floyd the Barber from the Andy Griffith show? Just a thought. Take care. All the best to you and your family. P.S. If you read this on air, can you wait till I wake up? No, we'll read it when we read it. You should be listening to all four hours of this show anyway. So, um, you know, I don't know. Does Tom Tom from the Bronx? I just like to say, yeah, yes. Uh, hiya, Frank. Does he sound like Floyd from the Andy Griffith Show? Philippe, if we can, let's try and get some audio of Floyd from the Andy Griffith Show, and we'll, um, you know, we'll compare it to Tom from the Bronx. We'll do a comparison of Tom from the Bronx and Floyd from the um, Andy Griffith show. That'll be good. Uh, all right. Keith writes, uh, uh, this is, I don't want to even read this. It's a little immodest. Keith writes, listener and caller for about a year, a former TV producer, your Buffalo intro in the 4 a.m. block may be your best work to date. Keep it up. Well thought out, written, and delivered. Keith, Upper West Side. Well, Keith, I appreciate the compliment, but it was not written. I didn't write anything down. It was uh, sort of just off the cuff. Most of what you hear in the monologue segments is not written. You know, usually the only thing that I'll read are uh, articles. I'll read from articles. But I usually I don't write my monologues down. Maybe I should write more of them down. Hey, uh, I'm really excited. Uh, we're, we're going to talk with Martha Byrne in uh, just a couple of minutes. Her husband is going through a tough time, so we'll go through it. Um, if you did not get your letter read on the air today, you can email me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com, and perhaps it will be read on the next edition of... Martha Byrne joins me in a couple of minutes. By the way, uh, for those of you that want to see a photo of young Carmine, I have uh, just put one on Facebook of uh, he and I getting ready for Ariana Idala's baptism on Sunday. And you can see him in a cute little bow tie. So that's at Facebook.com slash MoranoFan. And I also put a different photo, but capturing the same thing, at uh, on, on Instagram at MoranoVision. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Vision. So... Uh, you know, obviously I'm biased, but I think it's a pretty cute little kid. Uh, and, uh, you know, he looks pretty good with that bow tie. I never really learned how to tie a bow tie. That's, I guess, why Tucker Carlson achieved a level of success that I never achieved. He was very good with the bow tie. Same thing with Louis Farrakhan, another guy very good with the bow tie. I never was. That's probably why my application to head the Nation of Islam got sent to the round filing cabinet. All right. Uh, Martha Byrne, soap opera star and philanthropist, joins me straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. 
This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Uh, 3.25 in the morning. I'll tell you, we this show may soon get an Emmy nomination. Because this is quickly becoming the go-to radio program for Emmy winners. Yesterday, we were joined by um, Kelsey Grammer, who was a an Emmy winner. And today... We are joined by a three-time Emmy Award-winning actress, writer, and producer with a career spanning over 30 years in the entertainment industry. She also happens to be the wife of a highly decorated NYPD sergeant, Martha Byrne. Uh, Martha, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. I know it's a tough hour, and I appreciate you being available. (laughs) That's okay. That's okay. When I get invited to come on your show, I'm absolutely going to show up. Thank you. Well, uh, the pleasure is uh, is all mine. I'm I'm sorry that uh, we're going to be focusing on a topic which I'm sure is not the most pleasant for you to uh, talk about. But when I was promoting your appearance, all sorts of people reached out to me and said, I can't believe you're having Martha Byrne on. I loved her Uh on uh, As the World Turns. I loved her on General Hospital. And you are really a huge soap opera star. But it seems to me that soap opera fame is a little bit different from all other types of fame. Have you found that? Is being a soap star different than being a star in other media? Absolutely, because you're coming into people's living rooms every single day. So you're part of their family. You're part of their landscape of their home every day. You know, people would turn on the television. They would sit. They would have conversations with their friends, their family, and it like a, a part of their their lives so and they watch you grow up so I started on the show when I was 15 years old so they watched me go through high school and get married in real life and have my kids on television because they saw me pregnant they saw me they knew about my real life they would read up on you so it, it's a relationship I mean how often does somebody be on a show for almost 20 years so you've seen them you know their entire life on camera do you ever have a situation, and maybe this is not the kind of thing that really happens in real life, but do you ever have a situation where people recognize you on the street and then they talk to you and greet you as if you're the character that you played on one of these soap operas? Always. Really? People still, yeah, people call me Lily. I mean, the woman in my, my bank, my, my drive through at the bank, she recognized my voice just on the drive through which was so strange because I haven't been on the show for so long. And she said, you sound like Lily from As the World's. So people just know you as that character because, remember, they don't know you're, you uh, – they can relate to you that way. And I, I love that because it means that you've, you know, you've, you've captured something and your performance that feels real to them, and it's personal. So I, I just love it. It still happens today. Well, that's great. Yeah, people still greet me as if I'm this Frank Morano character instead of greeting me as if I'm <laughs> under my real name. Um, now <laughs> – um, you've been married to your husband, Michael McMahon, for uh, about three decades. How yeah. does a an Emmy Award-winning uh, soap opera star end up with a decorated NYPD sergeant? When we picture cops getting married from Jersey, we, we generally picture them marrying, I don't know, another cop or a teacher or a homemaker. When we picture uh, Emmy Award-winning actresses getting married, we picture them getting married and divorced from other Emmy Award-winning actors. How did you end up with a cop? I met him through a really dear friend of mine who I had just moved back in California, and it was kind of a girls' night out with my really close friend from high school, and she said, well, my, my brother-in-law's cousins are going to come meet us out. I was like, okay. And walked in. It really is like a, it does sound like a fairy tale, but he walked in. And I was like, ooh, he is cute. So 
I walked up to him and, and I knew he was Irish and I'm Irish, you know, through and through Irish. And I said, I hear your name is McMahon and I'm Byrne. And, you know, we started talking about our families. And before you know it, you now we were together, we were engaged within six months and married within a year. And that was in 1993. Wow. It's been a long time. Yeah, uh, yeah I would, I would say so. That's, uh, that's wild. Now, he had quite a career. As uh, yeah. as a police officer, he was uh, he had got over seventy five career awards, including the uh, the Combat Cross, and then I know he went into a, a different career as a private investigator. So did he retire from the NYPD before starting his uh, private investigation firm? Yes, yes. So what happened was he you know had been in street crime and he had worked in narcotics and undercover and you know he had had an incredible career in the Bronx and all over the city, actually. And he was in a police chase um, that was in the Bronx, and he hit a telephone pole at 50 miles an hour, mm. and, it, and it ended his career, um, which was devastating to him. I mean, he was, when I say heartbroken, when that happened, he broke his hip. He broke, broke he, he was just devastating injuries. So when he retired, he was really didn't know what to do because he had taken the police test when he was 16 years old, NYPD. He, it was a career. It was a calling for him. And he's had to switch gears and he became a private investigator and then became one of the most sought after successful private investigators in the country, really, because he worked with some of the top defense attorneys in the world, really, for high profile cases and um, really became a, a wonderful new career for him. And it turned, it took a dark turn um, in October of 2020 after working for his business, he had developed his business and grown his business for 13 years. Um, on October 28th, 2020, uh, the front door banging on our front door and the FBI stormed our house and he was arrested uh, for working as a, for, <laughs> I, I laugh because it's ridiculous, um, as a foreign agent working for the Chinese Communist Party. Now, which is the most, but, yeah. No, 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 please it, go ahead. Finish, finish the thought, yeah, please. But so just so you just so to kind of get some clarity on this. Yeah. So in October 2020, this case that he was arrested for happened in 2016 uh, for a few days. He did some background checks. He did some. I mean, he's had hundreds of cases since he's been a PI. Now, this is a, this is a normal routine case. Ran some background checks, did some asset searches. It was a civil matter. Uh, and then he did a few days of surveillance in April of 2017, and he never thought about it again. It was just a routine case, and then all of a sudden, your life is completely shut down, um, and you start trying to put the pieces together. Why the heck this happened? I mean, it was it's been hard. It's been a horrible, horrible injustice that's happened to my husband. Um, if people are just tuning, we're talking with uh, Martha Byrne, uh, Emmy Award-winning actress, also uh, a philanthropist who's raised millions of dollars for charities like uh, St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital. And uh, her husband, um, Michael McMahon, retired, highly decorated NYPD sergeant, arrested about a, a year and a half ago by the FBI. Prior to that arrest in October of 2020, either as a private investigator or as a police officer, did he ever have any other uh, problems with the law? Was he ever accused no. of, of a crime no. or anything like that? This guy, let me tell you something. This guy was the, the no, <laughs> never. Well, he is, when you, hear, you know, you hear about his career, this is a guy who would, you know, lay his life on the line anybody in this country and would to, to this day and, and sacrifice his entire life for us. 
for others. But no, he was, again, highly decorated. And in his career, you know, as a private investigator, he became the sought after PI because the defense attorneys are always like, this guy knows the streets. He has more more integrity than anybody I've ever met. Um, No, this was this was completely out of the blue, Um, you know, to out of the blue. I mean, shock, I would say. Um, And to find out that, you know, he did nothing wrong, by the way. So just so you know, in the case, nothing he did that he's been accused of is is uh, out of the scope of what you're legally allowed to do as a private investigator. So surveillance, background checks, asset searches, this is all he's all these things he's legally allowed to do. So there was no crime. So to this day, after thousands of pages of discovery, we're still going, why was Mike McMahon, my husband, charged with anything? Because there is no crime. So we don't, we still don't know to this day why he was even charged in the first place. And by the way, with his background, like just so you know, he was a federally approved private investigator, which means he was cleared by the federal government and does background, they did background checks, they did security checks on him because he worked on some of the most high profile federal cases in the country wow. and was allowed to do so. So the fact that he was federally approved to work on other cases, why wasn't he brought in to work on this case with the government in 2017? Why didn't they see this guy as an asset? Why did they, why did they peg him as a criminal in that case, but all the other federal cases that he worked on, he was the go-to guy? It doesn't so- make Let's discuss the details of this case that he was uh, arrested for in October of 2020. Now, when he was arrested, um, what exactly what he was he charged with? I know you said it was being in cahoots with the Chinese Communist Party, but what what crimes has he been charged with? He was charged with FARA, which is a failure to register as a foreign agent, which, again, as a private investigator, he should be exempt under the commercial arm of that. Um, you've heard a lot about FARA. You've been hearing a lot about more about it in the last couple of years. Um, for interstate stalking, which apparently is, you know, him doing surveillance, which makes no sense because he he, he uh, alerted the police department, the local police department, every time he did surveillance, which he always does in every case. He lets them know they're his make, model, car, that he's armed, where he's going to be, so that it's it's just normal for PIs to do that. So, that can't be true. Um, conspiracy, which working for the Chinese Communist Party, by the way, how can you fail to register as a foreign agent when the people that have hired you have lied and given you false information about who they are? You know, Chinese agents walk around with you know business cards saying, hello, I'm a Chinese agent. And by the way, also, they he didn't do anything they asked him to do wasn't illegal. This is very important to understand what he was asked to do by the clients that hired him, the defendants, the real defense in this case, was not illegal. Doing background checks and doing surveillance is perfectly legal for what he did. So there wasn't any red flags to him to go, wait a minute, this is, this is really, something's not right here. Because if there were, he's a, he's a highly decorated guy and PI. He would have, you know, he knows his, his work. He you know, does his due sure. diligence. He does his background. He, you know, checks every fact that has been given to him and everything checked out. So this, this is a, even more concerning, I think, is that there, there was no crime here. And we're still, we're still sitting here going, and we're fighting this. And we've been fighting it since day one.
It's ridiculous. Oh, no, no, I mean, it sounds it sounds insane. Now, uh, just so the audience is clear, the client that hired your husband to do private yeah. investigative work, they were affiliated with the Chinese Communist Party? So what happened was he was called by a legitimate translation company in New York. He was paid through an American bank. He, d- he signed um, uh, retainer, a retainer agreement with an American company. The client said they had money stolen from a Chinese construction company that were looking for assets here in this country. Okay, so these were American people that were hiring him to do assets to see if there was money here where the money was, which is very common. If you someone steals money anywhere in this country, they want to find out where mm. they're spending it. Where the people spend. That's it. So everything about this was checked out like again the story the background it was it all made sense that's it i mean if you're getting hired by an american company for something that's legitimately you're legal allowed to do and normal very common where's the where's the the issue there is no issue that's why you know um that's it it's so simple and and, and insane i can't we're still talking about this i really can't what they've done to my husband isn't it's unforgivable it is tragic that they arrested my husband in front of my children for no reason. It's absolutely unforgivable to me. And the fact that they didn't come to him and warn him. By the way, Richard Grinnell, who is the former dean of the country, he said that the government has an obligation to notify U.S. citizens if they've been targeted by a foreign entity, if they've been targeted by foreign agents, a foreign anything. We, we were not warned. And Christopher Ray, also the head of the FBI, said these people were acting like a, a criminal, a organized crime syndicate. So excuse me, you've known since 2017 that my husband was targeted by Chinese agents and you didn't warn my family? You didn't protect us? But, you know, it, 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 what I tell you, it goes beyond the scope of, of uh, uh, insanity. I, I, I can't believe I'm still talking. And, and they never saw it, just to be clear, they never saw it to get your husband to cooperate as part of some investigation no. against this entity. No, no, which they should have done because he is incredibly, you know, the fact that they didn't bring him in and have him become a part, an asset for this, this operation is, is, is shameful. Right. Or at least because, ask, at least ask, right. How much, uh, how much, is, how much is, listen, by the way, if they had come to him in 2017, what kind of information could they have gotten and helped them? You know, this is how many years ago you're going to come in my house for they investigate him for four years for four years they investigated my husband instead of bringing him in he's across the bridge for god's sakes we live in new jersey why it boggles the mind that he can be working on federal cases sometimes probably in the same building maybe Mm. of the people that are investigating him and they're not they're not bringing him in i I, no one can understand this this is a question we still don't have an answer to this day now, we've heard, as you mentioned, a great deal about Farah lately. Um, Paul Manafort, who was on this show not long ago, we discussed the Farah charges that he was charged with. Uh, my colleague Rudy Giuliani, people are always talking about him potentially getting charged for a Farah violation. Um, 
I don't know of any other instance. Uh, now, you, normally the people that you think of having FARA issues are lobbyists, consultants, people that do work with foreign governments. Uh, I don't know of any other instance of a private investigator being charged with FARA violations. Is that common from what you're aware of, no. Martha? No, not at all. Not only is it not common, I have spoken to private investigators across this country and national PI associations. They didn't even know about it. They weren't even aware of it. So that's a problem. If the, if the government knows that PIs are part of the spycraft of, of these foreign actors and they're not warning them, when I tell you I sat across from major private investigators of this country and they looked at me like, oh, my gosh, and we had no idea. Because, by the way, it's, it falls under a commercial exemption in FARA. Michael, my husband made a few thousand dollars on this case. That's it. So why would he risk his entire life, his business, family, his integrity for a few thousand dollars to work for the Chinese Communist Party, by the way? But FARA, there's not a FARA here. That's why no other private investigators have been charged. Mm. You know, and the, the fact that he was charged, there's a lot to this case that I have a lot of questions about. And I'm not going away until I figure out the answers here because it makes no sense whatsoever. What was None. bail set at your, for your husband when he was arrested? $500,000 cash bail and far, far more than the the actual defendants that um, hired him that were arrested. And many of them are in China, by the way, never coming back. The ones that were the actual heads of this operation are gone and never coming back. So my husband, $500,000 cash bail for it. it just, you know, your whole life turns upside down. He loses his business. You know, he loses his, they take away his PI license. His, he's plastered all over these, the, the, the news with false information about this case. He, you know, they destroyed him, his, his reputation. It's just disgusting. So I, I can't even... You know, no, my, my heart goes out to both of you and your three children. Thank I can't you. talk Thank about a, a living nightmare. Um, so... I just reiterate, he got a half million dollars bail, and that was a great deal more than the people that hired him, who I guess were yeah. a lot closer to the being at the heart of the conspiracy. How could he, who has no prior criminal record, how can he get more, so much more of a, a bail package than the people that hired him, who uh, I guess if there's a real criminal to be had, that's a much more severe degree of criminality, I would think. That's a great question, and I have no answer to that. It's, it's you have to ask them. Decided that why why he's the, you know he's this whatever they whatever they labeled him as, but I have no idea. It makes absolutely no sense. What has this done uh, over the last year and a half to your family's finances? I mean, <laughs> uh, hit a brick wall. I mean, you know, thank God we have, you know, um, I mean, how, how do I even answer that question? It's, it's devastating. It's devastating. I mean, you're, you've, you've put your life together. You've built a life. You have children to raise. You have, you know, you're, you've established yourself um, in, in your life where you've tried to build um, some sort of future for yourself. And then you're hit out of nowhere. And it's just devastating. I mean, it's absolutely devastating. We have an incredible family and friends. And, uh, you know, we've been really getting 
by and, and, and we're okay, you know, like we're going, we're okay, but we don't know the future of this. And that's the scary part. I don't say scary because we you know we're not going anywhere, by the way, he's not taking any plea deal and he's not, we are not stopping until he's that, that's precisely him. what I was going to ask you about. So uh, he's going to take this to trial. Absolutely. Absolutely. There is no evidence that he did anything wrong. And to this day, like I said, thousands of thousands of pages, we've still yet to see any, any, anything that shows that he had any knowledge who these people actually were. And trust me, the, the truth always comes out. The truth always remains at the end of this. And we were going to wait until that happens because it has to get out. The truth has to get out about this case. Um, but no, we're not, we're not backing down. And I think that's the, the, the sad part is that the pressure, you know, the intimidation and all of that. It's like, this guy's innocent. He goes, I'm never, ever standing in front of a judge and going to lie and say, I did something I didn't do. Never. And I'm right behind him. I mean, I'm right there. With, and my kids, my kids, you know, what do you, how, you have to show your children about what's right and wrong and standing up for that for their, for your children. And that there are bad people out there who, who don't have the best intentions and you have to fight them and say, this is wrong. So As parents have to do it. What is Mike's status these days? I know he's out on bail. Are there conditions that he has to adhere yes. to? What are they? Yes. He's not allowed to travel. He can only stay in New York and New Jersey. That's it. He's not allowed to go anywhere outside the, 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 those parameters. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's like it's <laughs> the, the punishment is the process. Someone says, you know, that's the kind of the, the day-to-day of like living with this um, is just hell. But again, he's, you know, he's extremely, he has so much integrity and he has so much, I mean, his heart is broken. The fact that he, that people would think he, that's what I think the thing that really hurts him is that how anyone could look at his career and think for one second that he would do anything against the country, his family, his commitment to this country he almost died several times when he was on the NYPD in shootings, running into burning buildings, helping people. I mean, when I say helping people, this man gave blood for this country and for that city. And to have people look at his career and decide to keep him in this, this whoever decided to keep him in this case a year after year after year, why? Who, who signed off on it? That's the thing that kills him is like, who would, it see, who would think that I would ever do something like this? And it's hurtful. Um, and, you know, shame on them for, for not raising him up as a hero and treating him as a criminal. He is a hero. How many heroes do we still have on this mm. planet? Who, how, how can we punish heroes? If you start punishing heroes, who's going to want to sign up for that and go, well, why? Just to be treated like, like I'm, I'm, I'm a criminal? It's, it's, it's terrible. I mean, you know, the thing I said the other day was with Mike McMahon off the street and not being able to be a PI, working for the innocent. And when you're a def- working for the defense attorneys, you're trying to find, help innocent people get off and, and make sure they're not jailed, incarcerated. This is what he does. This is what he's so good at. Taking him off the street for the last year and a half, who gets really hurt by that? Who, who misses out? Other innocent people who need him on the ground, mm. helping them, helping them? It's a, it's it's terrible. All the defense attorneys that he's worked for, are like Mike, as soon as this, and they, we we love you. Like we can't, we miss you. We need you. You're our best investigator. 
this is terrible what they're doing to you. So, you know, he's just an amazing man. He's an amazing father. He's, he's you know, how, 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 how many people on this, like I said, on this earth have the kind of heart and soul and dedication and, and unselfishness like my husband? I dare you to find anybody as good as him in, on this planet. I swear to you. And not just because I've been married to him for 30 years. He's just one of the good guys. And to have this done is just unforgivable. So I'm going to fight for him every step of the way. Well, that's wonderful. And it sounds like, um, you know, you may be among his uh, greatest assets because uh, the, uh, the, the the passion uh, that you have for uh, coming to his defense is very inspiring. Now, why do you think, and I realize maybe you can't answer this question, but why do you think he was targeted? A lot of times when you hear about folks being targeted by the Justice Department or this prosecutor or that prosecutor, they usually have some idea, okay, they're doing it because of this agenda or they're doing it because this person has a personal axe to grind against me. Why do you think, I know I'm asking you to speculate here, but why do you think your husband has been targeted like this? put it this way i'm one i i follow the facts okay i have theories you know we all have theories walk around with theories but i follow the facts and there's always an answer to that question and i will absolutely go down that rabbit hole and find out you know what's going on here and what this is all about remember when mike was working for this case in 2016 you know fall 2016 early 2017 the China initiative wasn't in place yet either. So in 2018, the China initiative came into uh, the government to to really work on trying to find, you know, really Chinese agents or Chinese trying to steal IP. You know, it became a much more to the forefront of our government, the China initiative. Now, Mike had been out of this case for a year and a half or so, whatever it was when that happened. How do, you know, why did they keep him in? That would have been a great time to bring him in in 2018 to become part of these, this case. If they weren't going to bring him in 2017, they could have brought him in in 2018 when it became amped up, where they were really looking into what's really going on here. And they did. And there's always an answer to this question. I don't know it yet, but I have my ideas and I have my theories on why. And it's has to be answered and it will be answered because they're right now it's like it's it's just w- why um there's always an answer you know um, it's hard for me to believe it is, wrong. It, it's hard for me to believe that the DOJ is actually going to go through with trying this case but uh if and when that does come to fruition I, I'd like to be there in court to to watch this what is the next step in this case what is the timetable for a, a trial likely beginning well, we'll you know continue to file motions to dismiss. We've already filed some that were were not granted. We'll file more, um, you know, and, and really dive in more into this the wrongs of this case and why it should have never have happened in the first place. We'll continue to do that. And you know, we have a status hearing in June where we you know discuss where we are with the case. Um, and then in January of 2023, we're scheduled to have a three week trial. And in the meantime, you still fight. You're constantly fighting. Sure. And our lawyer, uh, our lawyer is uh, Gibbons Law Firm, Larry Lusberg out of New Jersey. He's a freaking beast, amazing lawyer, and is just appalled that this has happened to him. And, you know, he's an amazing lawyer. And I think we're very, because Mike had worked with some of the best lawyers in the country, you know, we, have, we had incredible people who 
has such knowledge and experience in this field to to help us and guide us through this process. Well, that's so, wonderful. I know the uh, the yes. Pipe Hitter Foundation has uh, gotten yes, behind your husband's case, yes. and uh, yes. I just posted a link to uh, some information, and uh, folks can can donate on there, and they can learn more about the case. I posted it on my Facebook page. People can check it out so at much. Facebook. Dot com slash Morano fan. But Martha, what else can people do uh, if they want to help your husband and your family? And as you guys go through this or, you know, if they want to make sure this doesn't happen to someone else, um, what can folks rank and file people do? Because I think a lot of people are hearing what happened to you and your family and they're getting pretty outraged by this. Thank you very much. I appreciate you asking them that. Well, first of all, the Pipe Hitter Foundation, you know, voted unanimously to support us, which is so humbling for Mike to know that people are out there that believe in him and believe in his innocence on such a large scale. First of all, we have to thank the Pipe Hitter Foundation, Eddie Gallagher and Andrea and the board that, that voted unanimously to support us, which is such, you know, gives you hope, you know, for, for Michael to have people like that. It was just, you know, all of us, a mess too. It, it was so, it was a ray of hope in a place when we were in such darkness so I think people can check out, you know, keep checking on the site and, and we'll have updates on the case there. You know, as we move forward, I think I posted on your Facebook page. You know, I haven't spoken about this on my own platforms publicly. Yeah, I appreciate you doing this interview. Well, no, I, 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 but I'm going to on a much larger scale. And I, what I would ask, this is all we ask. I will never not tell the truth. I will always give you the, the, exactly what's going on in this case. And I, all I of people who are my fans or are following this case that listen to us, hear it from our voice about what's really happening here. Don't get sources from anywhere else other than my voice and what I'm sharing with the world, whether it's an article, whether it's an interview, or there's a huge few articles that are going to be coming out um, on this case in the mm-hmm. next few weeks. And I'm looking forward to them, reading them to see how, how they turn out uh, to support us. Um, so all I ask is that I think people know me. You know, the one thing about I don't think people understand in in the DOJ or any you know, that people know us. Mm-hmm. Like, they've known like they've known me since I was a teenager. Like I have a huge support system because they know that I always have a relationship with with my fans. Martha, we're going to have to end it there. I'm just about out of time. I'm wishing you the best of luck with this. I'm hoping that uh, people will go to the uh, Pipe Hitter Foundation's uh, website and go to pipehitterfoundation.org or just go to the link on my Facebook page and uh, keep us posted on this. I'll be there when the trial begins. You're awesome. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, Thank you. Martha Byrne. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, give me a call 1-800-848-WABC 800-848-9222 straight ahead. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. I'll be with you until 5 o'clock in the morning. Then Deb Valentine takes the reins uh, with the WABC early news from 5 to 6. Then, after I move my car, I'm going to be back on the air with you from 6 to 10 with our owner, John Katzmatidis, in for uh, Bernie and Sid. 
today. So uh, we have an action-packed broadcasting day. Uh, and my thanks to my uh, my wife, um, Rachel, for being willing to sacrifice because I usually give her a break in the first few hours of the day from you know the time I get home around 6.30 until – until nine, uh, looking after our, our boy. So I imagine that's going to mean a little less sleep for her today so that I could uh, do this show. So I uh, appreciate that. All right. 800-848-9222. Al is in Manhattan. Hello, Al. Hey, Frank, what's going on? Uh, you so, tell me, Al. Well, I'm going to try to. I, the first thing that comes to my mind, that was a great interview just now. Thanks. And the first thing that I was thinking a little while is, is somebody that's applying the pressure from the FBI side. There's got to be one person overseeing it that says, no, we're going to keep going forward with it no matter what. Do they know who that person is? Well, uh, you broke up a little bit there, Al, but I, I think the question was, do okay. they know who that person is? And I tried to ask that question. And uh, look, you heard Martha's answer. If she knows, she didn't tell me. So we'll see. We'll keep following this case. Uh, I have a feeling... After this interview, you're going to be hearing a lot more about this case. Uh, as she said, she hasn't done a lot of press on this. And I was glad she chose to do one of her first big interviews on this show. Until next hour, your influence counts, so use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Um, You know, an interesting thought came to me yesterday. So often, I will, when I talk to friends, family, or you, and you, look, I've come to consider you, even if we've never met, friends and family, because the things that I share with you are things that I wouldn't share with some of my closest friends in the world. I have found that so often when I get a movie recommendation, there's a movie that I would never have thought to have seen that I really, really enjoyed. Now, I haven't seen a movie in, I guess, about two or three weeks, maybe more, just because of my the constraints on my time. And I've been catching up with a little bit of television. But it got me interested in looking up something. And I started looking up just yesterday the best movies or the you know the best motion pictures you've never seen. And I started to put together this list based on research that I was doing online of a bunch of films that sounded really great. And I thought it might be fun to get a break from um, 
shootings in Buffalo and redistricting and aliens and decorated cops being arrested. I thought it might be fun to make a list, and I will share this on the Facebook page, on the Facebook group, rather, of the best films you've never seen, meaning you've seen them, but I haven't. So if somebody were to ask you, if well, I am asking you, what is the best film you've seen that I've never heard of? 800-848-WABC. You know, we got that great film recommendation a couple of months ago from Gabriel of Gabriel over the White House. And so far, I still haven't seen it. I have the DVD. And if it rains this weekend, uh, I am hoping to watch it. I still haven't seen it. It's been a struggle to find 90 minutes or two hours. But uh, I thought it might be fun to kind of put together a list. So I'll kick things off. One is something that you uh, may have seen, but I'm thinking I'm going to name two. But the first you may have seen, I don't think you have. And then the second one, I am relatively certain you haven't seen. The first one is a film called The Spanish Prisoner. Absolutely loved it. It's from the 90s, mid-90s. Um, very kind of um, ne- it's a thriller, but it was sort of a neo film noir. Very well done. Uh, stars of all people, Steve Martin in a serious role. Really well done. And uh, another film that I really enjoyed that I found most people are unfamiliar with. And you could go in different genres, and I don't care whether you pick a comedy, musical, drama, older, newer, whatever. Uh, 800-848-9222. Another film that I really enjoyed, in fact, when I saw the acting in this film when it first came out, I said, I think this is one of the best films I've ever seen. Now, I've seen it a couple of times since then, and I'm backing off of that a bit. It's not one of the best films that I've ever seen, but it is great, and it's worth seeing just for the acting alone. That film is called Swimming with Sharks. Have you ever heard of that? It's uh, a drama, kind of a dark comedy at times. Kevin Spacey, who's terrific, is in it. And uh, Frank Whaley is in it. He's terrific. And the female lead is also very good. I'll look up her her name. But she's the actress that played Roe Laren, Ensign Roe, on uh, Star Trek The Next Generation. And then she went on to play Julie, George's girlfriend, on uh, Seinfeld. Michelle Forbes is the actress's name. Uh, She's a wonderful actress, and she's the star, the female lead in that film, Swimming with Sharks. So those are my two, Um, The Spanish Prisoner and Swimming with Sharks. What do you got? What is the best film that you've seen that almost everyone you've ever met hasn't seen? 800-848-WABC. Matt Blaze, you have one? I'm trying to think of one. Try that somebody hasn't seen. That's the problem. That's that's why it's such a challenging exercise. Time. I'm trying to think of what is what is like a weird movie that I like that people like. The only thing I can think of right now, Lone Wolf McQuaid. So fill me in on that. I'm not up on that. It is a Chuck Norris movie from the 80s. Okay. And right. the other and there's another Chuck Norris movie actually that I always talk about that people haven't seen. It's called Silent Rage, mm. which is like a horror movie, really. 
Um, I haven't seen either of those. Here, we'll put one. one which is the better of the two? We'll put I'll it on say our list. Silent Rage. Silent Rage. Okay, good. Um, I'm going to name another one. It's a comedy, and I find it very funny. It's called The Dream Team. Michael Keaton, Christopher Lloyd, Peter Boyle, and Stephen First. Have you seen that? I remember that. The Mental Hospital. You, so you saw that? Yeah. Okay, so I won't put it on the list. It's not obscure enough. Have you ever seen the movie Crazy People with Dudley Moore? No, okay. I remember it, but I never saw so it. So this is a very funny picture. Um, Dudley Moore is an advertising executive who goes crazy. So they send him to a mental institution, and I think, um, who's the female lead? It might be Daryl Hannah that's in this. I'm going to look it up. But um, they send him to a mental institution, and he and the other people that are battling mental illness in the mental institution, they all become, yeah, it is Daryl Hannah. They all become star advertising people, and these gr- this group of mental patients works on advertising. I know it sounds silly, and it is, but it's funny. What is the best film that you've seen that no one else has? 800-848-WABC. Mark in Rochelle Park, what do you have for us? Hey, Frank. I, I don't know if this is obscure enough for you, but a lot of people haven't seen Lawrence of Arabia with Peter O'Toole. Um Have you seen that? I have seen it. I don't think that is obscure enough because that was named, yeah, okay. you, know, uh, you know, on all the top yeah. film lists – that's always at or near the top. So there's a lot of awareness of Lawrence of Arabia out there. But I think a lo- but I think a lot of people haven't seen it because it's a long movie, and you want, but it, it it will grab you. So if you haven't seen Lawrence of Arabia, to your fans out there in the uh, other side of Midnight Land, watch that. My other one is by Christopher Nolan, Memento. Have you seen that with Guy Pearce? Of course, that's the movie that's backwards. Fantastic. That's that's really great. That's really good. I, I love that movie. I, I do too. Thank you, Mark. You've seen Memento, right? Yeah, I won't. So I'm not. I'm not. See, I'm not putting it on the list then. I don't think it's obscure enough. So I'm not putting either of those on there. Chris in Mount Vernon. Hello, Chris. Hey, Frank. There's a movie with uh, Kristen Bale. It's called Equilibrium. Ooh. And I don't know if you ever heard of that. No. Right? Tell me about action, it. It's an action movie. It's about a dystopian society. Everybody every day has to take an injection to get rid of all emotion because supposedly emotion is what causes war and all that stuff. And there's a there's like an uproar, like a, a bunch of people that are like revolting against that 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 refuse. They want to feel and they want to enjoy art and stuff like that. And it's it's incredible. The action scenes are great. Too. How old uh, like how something. old of a picture is it? Ah. Uh, Maybe 15 years ago. Okay. 2002, I'm being told. He's way younger in that movie, and it's almost like uh, it's almost like The Matrix, sort of, it's like, as far as the action scenes and all that. You have to watch. It's really, really I, good. I'll put it on the part. list. Thank you, Chris. 800-848-WABC. Mike in New Hyde Park. What do you got for us, Mike? I, I feel like it's almost impossible to deliver anything to you that you haven't seen. No, I mean, no, I, I haven't seen, I mean, I'm amazed at some of the things I haven't seen. But what do you have, Mike? Well, some of them just bear mentioning. Koyana Scotsi. Uh, Francis Ford Coppola produced it in 1982. Godfrey Reggio, a retired priest, created it out of Hopi Indian folklore. And, g- and give me the title that. again. Give me the title again. It's so. It's a Hopi Indian word. Koyana Scotsi. K-O-Y. 
I thought of Scotty from Star Trek, Boyana <laughs> Scott. Gotcha. No, I've never seen this. This looks interesting. It, it actually it premiered. <clears throat> excuse me. It premiered at Avery Fisher Hall with Philip Glass conducting the orchestra live. It was incredible. It changed. It's one of these films that changed film. It's it's like a secret. Really? Wow. Was, that's a good movie. Shadow of the Vampire with Willem Dafoe. Uh, I actually met the director a few times. Willem Dafoe plays Count Orlock from Nosferatu. And, yeah, I've seen that. That's a good one. Um, and the last, oh, Jackie Chan, The Foreigner. I never would go to a Jackie Chan film, but this was completely huh. separate from anything else in his portfolio. All right, The Foreigner. Really I'll, I'll, I'll put it on the... You like all those films. And, uh, oh, one last one. It's a Spanish film. It's from the late 80s. It's brilliant. Cabeza de Vaca, which basically just means head of the cow. Oh. It's about these conquistadors who get in a shipwreck, they're stranded in Florida, and the Native Americans turn them into slaves. And it, as they travel across America, it becomes this messianic theme. Really good movie. Cabeza de Vaca. Cabeza de Vaca. I will That's check the head that. of the cow in Spanish. Wow, I love it. Okay. I'll, I'll put them all on the list, Mike. Thank you. Mikey in Central Jersey, what do you have for us? Hey, good morning, Uncle Frank. Uh, I love the film The Spanish Prisoner. I own it on VHS starring the Me, late, great Ricky Jay. So do I. Guy, so that, do I. Now, the guy with the notebook in the film who plays the lead, who's that gentleman actor's name? Um, you know, uh, I have to look up his name. He was just on – he's in He's in the most recent season of Billions, and he's great. His name is – and that's a David Mamet film. Um, this, uh, it's uh, – I, th- uh, I, I got – I think it's Campbell Scott. Campbell Scott is correct. Yeah, Campbell Scott. Right, okay. Two recommendations. St. Ralph starring uh, Adam Butcher and that gentleman you just recommended, Campbell Scott. And things to do in Denver were dead, starring Andy Garcia. I've seen that one. That's actually uh, that's very good. So the other one is Saint Ralph. You're recommending Saint Ralph is a, uh, takes place in the fifties. Uh, Adam Butcher is a, a young boy, a twelve year old. His mother's in a coma, and he runs the Boston Marathon. All right, that, that's good. I'm, I'm, I'm it's gonna... a really cool movie. It's, it's it's from the heart. You know, it's a comeback movie. And the film, it's a radio broadcast of the Boston Marathon. Oh, okay. I love that. Mikey, thanks. Great suggestions. You know what I want to do here? I want to get to as many people as possible, and I want to get to as many films as possible. So for everyone that's calling in, let's limit it to one suggestion. Because if you name three and then the next guy names three, the next guy names four, then two things that will happen. One, we're going to have 500 films that people have to sit through. And two... We won't be able to get to everybody. So let's limit our suggestions to one each uh, going forward, prospectively. 800-848-9222. Tommy on Staten Island. Hello, Tommy. Hey, what's up, Frank? I stole my condo. Um, what were you going to mention? Oh, things to do in Denver when you're dead. Yeah, that one. is good. The, the way of the gun. The way of the gun. You know, I've heard of that. I've never seen it. What's that about? Del Toro's in. I've got a bunch of other people already. It's really good. I will uh, I will put that on the list. The way of the gun. Thank you. Todd in Maplewood. Hello. Oh. Hey, yeah. Uh, the one I'm going to give you is from back in 1983. It's called Never Cry Wolf. Never Cry Wolf. And give us, uh, give us like, a sentence what it's about. It's about a guy who goes, goes to find out why the caribou are being killed. And they're blaming the wolves, but he finds out that's not the case. And it's pretty neat. It's got the 
guy who played the nerd in The Untouchables, the nerdy guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the nerdy guy that was with uh, with the feds, and then Brian Dennehy. Okay. It's really cool. It's set, it's set in Alaska, and it, it's really good. Uh, got it. Thank you. Um, the great Donna from Huntington just texted me. And if you ever want to text me, you can do so at uh, 8168Morano. Uh, Donna from Huntington, who is uh, a wonderful person and a wonderful listener, uh, she texted The Straight Story from 1999 with Richard Farnsworth. It was a terrific, very touching film. I think not too many people saw it, but it's a wonderful film. It's a very good movie if you haven't seen it. I haven't seen it, and uh, I'll put it on the list, The Straight Story. Lori in Newburgh. Hello, Lori. Hi. How are you doing, Frank? Doing wonderful. Thanks. I wanted to mention a movie. I don't know if you've seen it. You probably did. It's about the Jewish mafia, Once Upon a Time in America, with Robert De Niro and James Woods. I have. That's a, a Sergio Leone uh, classic. Uh, is that a, is that obscure though? Have there are there a lot of people that haven't seen that? I think there is. Everybody that I've ever talked to said I've never seen that. And when I tell them how many hours it is, they don't even <laughs> want to take. It is long. It is long. Uh, thank you, Lori. Um, Matt Blaze, w- what's your ruling on that? No, I feel like that's obscure. pretty well known. Yeah, I've seen it. Yeah, it See, if it. you've seen it, that that's if I've seen it. It's pretty nice. Exactly. My, it's a good film, though. I'm not taking anything away from it. If you haven't seen it, it's worth checking out. Mike in New Jersey. Hello, Mike. Good morning, Frank. Uh, Frank, something wild. Um, 1986 uh, film directed by Jonathan Demme. Um, Melanie Griffith, uh, Jeff Daniels, and Ray Liotta. Oh, it was great one cast. of his first films. And give us the yeah. lowdown. What's the what's the log line or the tagline? What's um, it about? It's it's a comedy. Uh, it's kind of a road film and an adventure. Jeff Daniels, who's a straight shooting uh, like banker, gets involved with this girl, and uh, they go on a wild adventure. And it's kind of a dark. It, it's dark in certain uh, points. It uh, keeps you on the edge of your seat, and it gives you a lot of laughs. All right, I'm sold. Thanks, Mike. Sean in Virginia Beach, what do you have for us, Sean? Teacher's Pet, Clark Gable. You know, I think I've actually seen Clark. that. Uh, but um, remind me, refresh my recollection. What's that about? Uh, he's the, um, well, he's head of the newspaper editor. Right. And he hires this young guy and, and pushes him along. But uh, he won a film festival down here with that movie. Also, I know I'm not supposed to give you another one. I'm sure you've seen Atlantic City. Oh, I love that film. Burt Lancaster and Susan Sarandon. Doesn't get any better than that. Thank you, Sean. Patrick in Huntington, what do you have for us? Good morning, Frank. Uh, 29th Street. Danny Aiello? You know, uh, my hero, Joe Franklin, is one of the first people you see in that film uh, playing himself with the lottery. In fact, we've played the audio of Joe, um, you know, of Joe reading his line in 29th Street. Um, Do do a lot of... uh, uh, You can't find it anywhere. I think it's it's stuck in some legal thing. You could watch it on YouTube, and that's it. It is to be found but what a wonderful story and danny aiello is just fantastic but as always are there really a lot of people that haven't seen 29th street i believe so you can't find it anywhere dvd vhs it is it doesn't stream uh never has i used to have a 
a VHS, and I lent it out, and just like a book, you never get it back. Uh, that's true. I'm still waiting for my uh, book from uh, that fellow that used to work here, and I uh, lent him my Bret Hart book. Thank you. Nancy in Madison, New Jersey. What do you have for us, Nancy? Hi, Frank. Uh, Heaven Gate, Frank, Francis Ford Coppola. I, I, was a, I only saw it twice. The first time, I was the only one in the theater. Um, the second time, there were more people in the theater. It was a bust at the box office. But I have to tell you, I knew the ending, but Frank, I was as shocked at the ending the second time I saw it, even though I knew it was coming. Heaven's Gate. Yep. Francis Ford Coppola. It, I don't remember the year. Uh, it, I would say probably, let's see, was it before my brother died? Maybe um, had to be before 1995, I think. All right. Well, thank you. I feel like that's pretty well known, too. I actually haven't seen Evans Gate, so I'll put it on the list. I'll, I'll, but maybe because I just read this profile on Francis Ford Coppola and they compared Heaven's Gate in terms of his personal investment in it to this project that he's working on now. Maybe that's why it was there. Heaven's Gate. All right. Another fellow writing me The Wave. The Wave. Justin Long is in it. And the black guy from Scrubs. Justin plays a guy who screws a black family out of their insurance money, and one night in a club he's given a drug, and then I don't want to give too much away. Okay, The Wave. I'll put it on the list. Okay. Uh, all right, we got 16 here. These are some good films from what it sounds like on here. We'll, we'll, we'll finish at an even 25. Tom in Hell's Kitchen. Hello there, Tom. Hi, Frank. Good morning. Uh, the Life of Emile Zola. That's, is that Marlon? the best picture is back that, in the 30s. Uh, who's in that? Paul Muni. Paul Muni. Okay. Yeah, that's good. I've never seen that. I'll put it on the list, Tom. Thank you. Rosemary in Westchester. Hello. Oh, okay. Can I correct that woman? Woman, I'm not sure. I didn't look anything up. The um, Heaven's Gate, I think, is Michael Cimino, who, who did Deer Hunter. It was considered a bomb. It's not Coppola. No, I, I remember um, Coppola did have something to do with that. Um, Maybe may- he helped him, but he directed... Um, Cimino. No, you're right. It was Michael Cimino. You're right. It was uh, it was Michael Cimino. Yeah. Oh, no. Okay. Okay. I, I, okay it, I'll get. I'll, I'll go along. Um, so the Italian job. They did a remake, the original with um, Michael Caine, who could do no wrong in my eyes. The original, and No Coward has a cameo in it. The original. I think it's the late '60s, early '70s at most. Not. The remake Got later. Got it. The original Italian job. I love it. Thank you. By the way, um, Rosemary is right. That film, uh, Heaven's Gate, was not Francis Ford Coppola. The reason I, I did read an article, because I knew I saw Coppola's name with that film recently. And here's where I saw it. Here's what happened. Uh, the director of Heaven's Gate shot more than 1.3 million feet of footage costing the studio approximately $200,000 per day in salary locations and acting fees. Privately, and this is where I, I read an article where this was mentioned, it was joked that Samino, the director of that film, wished to surpass Francis Ford Coppola's mark of shooting one million feet of footage for Apocalypse Now. So I knew I saw Coppola's name affiliated with that uh, as well. Um, let me say hello to... Uh, David in Massachusetts. Hello, David. Hi, Frank. Big fan. How are you tonight? I'm great. Thanks. Thanks for calling. Um, throw back to the 70s. There was a Richard Pryor movie called uh, Bustin' Loose. 
Bustin' Loose. I've never seen it, and I'm a Richard Pryor fan. It's a cute movie where he's like a criminal, and he gets talked into driving a busload of dysfunctional kids across the country to go out to a farm in Seattle with Cicely Tyson. It's worth cool. the watch. It's a real heart-wrencher at the end. It's on the list. Thank you. Paul is in Levittown. Hello, Paul. Hey, what's up, Frank? How you doing? Good. I got a comedy for you. In God We Trust with Richard Pryor and uh, Mari Feldman. Uh, you know, I've never seen that one either. That's good. I'm putting it on the list. In God We Trust. Got it. All right. Billy in East Village, what do you got for us? I have a you have what? movie for your subject matter. Okay. It's called El Topo, directed by Alexander Nevsky. It's sort of a, it's a surreal movie. Uh, kind of like a Sergio Leone, surreal, uh, Clint Eastwood, and about somebody who has to challenge a bunch of adversaries. And, and you know, it's just super. The uh, way he doesn't have a, he doesn't have the uh, forty-five, but he he does a lot of other things. It's a, and it's about spiritual awakening. It's oh, called cool. El Topo. It's like a mouse digging, or actually a, a, a mole digging in the ground, and when. When he goes out above the ground and he's the light, he he gets a, it's 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 very you have to see it. it it's, yeah, well, yeah, so I'm really reading good. about it now. Apparently, it's a Mexican art film. Uh, people won't be bored with it though. If they see it, they'll be into no. it. No, oh, not at all. No, okay, it's, you got to watch I, I, out for those Mex- artists. It says Mexican. You sure it was Mexican? Alexander Nevsky. Um, I thought it was Brazilian, but anyhow, maybe I'm wrong. Okay. All right. Well, thank you. you. See it, though. Thank you, Billy. I'll, right. I'll put it on the list. 800-848-WABC. Terry is in Rockland County. Hello, Terry. Hi, Frank. <clears throat> um, the movie that I'll never forget, I think you'll really, really enjoy it, is My Name is Nobody. Have you, uh, have you ever heard of it or seen it? I, you know, it sounds vaguely familiar, but I've never seen it. What's it about? Uh, it's about... Um... <laughs> about a cowboy who finally meets his idol. He does everything he can mm. to make him become bigger than life, so he goes down in the history books. Oh, Henry, uh, Henry Fonda is in this? Yeah, I found it in the sale bin at Walmart a few wow. months ago. I'm going to check it out. I love Henry Fonda. Thank you, Terry. Uh, Paul in Manhattan, what do you got for us? Hi, Frank. I have a movie called The Fall, F-A-L-L. It's either from the late 90s or the early 2000s. I don't know who it, but I know it was produced by uh, one of the producers was Spike Jones. Okay, the fall. Uh, and give us the like elevator. It's about a guy who's stuck in a hospital and he can't move, and he con- he conceives and tells a tale to a little girl who's also at the hospital uh, to it's about an adventure story, and it's all con to get her to steal him drugs, bring him drugs to his bed. In oh, really? Okay, that sounds interesting. Movie, whenever this topic comes up, it's I tell people this movie, and they always thank me and say, "I had that." Ever see this movie. It's amazing. Really? Okay. I'll check it out. Thank you. Jim on the Palisades Parkway. Hello, Jim. Hey, um, the uh, Last Full Measure, it's a docudrama done very well, recent release, Samuel L. Jackson's in it. It's about a posthumous award of a congressional honor recipient, um, pararescue. Air Force men uh, with the uh, Memorial Day coming around. I thought it'd be a good idea. Great. So it's called The Last Full Measure? measure okay all right thank you jim why don't we do two more um and then we'll oh because then we'll have a good list and i'll post it mike in new jersey hello mike frank um the the winslow boy it was directed by david mamet which is the same right just repeat it for me again because our phones are screwed up here what is it the winslow boy the winslow boy Uh, and that's a david mamet film and it has a rebecca 
question in it, the same dress that was in the Spanish prisoner. Oh, really? Oh, I'm definitely going to check that out now. Thank you. 800-848-WABC. Sean in Park Ridge. Hello. Hey, I got a good one for you. I think it was 1997, Anthony Hopkins movie that kind of flew under the radar. It's called The Edge. The Edge. That's with Alec Baldwin, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen that. That is a good one. Some good acting in that film. Yeah, very, very suspenseful. That's good. I'm not putting it on the list, though, because I feel like it's too well known. Uh, Joe in Riverhead. Ed, uh, Frank, uh, The General uh, with Buster Keaton. uh, It's the silent film, 1926, uh, produced by Joseph Schenck. It's about he he, in the Civil War. Uh, It's very funny. It's it's hilarious. And um, he goes, uh, he's a Confederate uh, soldier, and he uh, overcomes... uh, the Union Army there, but because they took his girlfriend uh, away. You know, I just read this book about Buster Keaton, and they spent some time talking about that film. I haven't seen it, but it's one I've been meaning to. Thank you. Uh, 800-848-WABC. Joanna in Manhattan. Hello. Hi. Uh, Jackson County Jail. You heard of it? I don't think so. Give me the give me the elevator. Tommy Lee Jones ever did was written by the same guy who later won an Academy Award for Missing. But this was produced by Roger Corman. I uh, love Roger Corman. Thank you. All right, you know, so we got 27. Why don't we make it an even 30? Joe and Ron Conkaba, what do you have for us? Hey, Frank. Um, the movie The Fan with Robert, Robert De, Niro. De Niro and Wesley Snipes. Is that that? I, I feel like that might not be obscure enough. Oh, I, I saw it once, and I've been trying to locate it. I found it very interesting. It was a really well uh well, really, really good movie. All right. Well, fair enough. Maybe people haven't seen it. It's worth checking out. It's a great drama. You know, that reminds me of films that are difficult to find. I'm going to mention one. It's a comedy. Richard Dreyfus. It's called Let It Ride. This film is hilarious. And it's a gambling movie. And so if you're a gambler, and we have quite a few gamblers that listen, that's a film worth checking out, especially if you like horse racing. But it, even if you don't like gambling or horse racing, it's it's great. Uh, Terry Garr is the female lead. Richard Dreyfuss is the male lead. And you know who's great in that film? Buster Poindexter. David Johansson. He's in that film. We'll do uh, two more, and then we'll, uh, we'll, we'll call, it a, call it a list. Sophia is in Brooklyn. Hello, Sophia. Good morning, Frank. So Marilyn Monroe, Ann Bancroft, and Richard Win- Widmark in the... Don't, not the, don't Bother to Knock. Ooh. It's 1952. Yeah, it's a, a film noir. I believe the only one she ever made. Not a blockbuster by any stretch, but good. It was, you know, interesting. Uh, I will check that out. I love, uh, yeah. I love both Ann yeah. Bancroft and Marilyn Monroe. That's worth yeah. checking it out just for that. Timothy in South Orange. Hello. Timothy? Hey, how are you? Um, yeah, I'm here. Good. Uh, yeah, Three Days of the Condor. Robert Redford and Faye Dunaway. Is it three days in movie. a condor or end a condor? Three days of the condor. Of the with condor. Robert Redford. Yeah, it's it. It's about the CIA in New York City, and it, it's really good. All right, it's I'll really put it on the list. And we'll, thank you, Timothy. We'll make that the last word. I'm going to post this whole um, list on there in case folks want to. Um, want to add to it or, you know, say, oh, that film doesn't belong on there, whatever. I'm going to post the whole list in our Facebook group. Um, so if you want to 
see it, just go to um, just go to Facebook and type Morano Radio Fans and Haters. Um, it's not in order. It's just in the order that we got these. The best films you've never seen. All right. Uh, coming up in a minute, we're going to give you an opportunity to win $1,000. If you can answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds, then be the seventh caller right now to 1-800-848-9222. We'll play the $1,000 minute. Seventh caller at 800-848-WABC. Straight ahead. This is the butt from the movie School Days by Spike Lee. If you ever want to know what music we're playing on the show, join the Facebook group. We will post it in there each and every morning. Uh, just search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters. All right. Um, it, without further ado, it is time for one lucky person to have an opportunity to win some money. The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Morano. Well, let's meet today's contestant. Thank you, Chris Libertini. Keith in Jamaica. Hello, Keith. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing well, Keith. Now, are you calling from the nation of Jamaica or Jamaica, Queens? Uh, Jamaica, Queens, because my flight was canceled last night, and I grabbed the hotel in Jamaica. Oh, where were you heading? Where were you trying to go? I was heading to Toronto from LaGuardia. Oh, you're in Toronto from LaGuardia? Okay, all right. Well, uh, are you traveling for business or pleasure? Uh, business. Okay. Business. And, and what do you, where do you reside normally? Uh, Smithtown, Long Island. Oh, okay. All right. So, uh, how's the hotel there? Did they give you? They put you up in a nice hotel, at least. Uh, it was weather. They didn't pay for it, so I stayed in the Holiday Inn Express. It was fun. It was good. All right. Well, hey, uh, not uh, not too bad. Okay. Uh, now, Keith, yeah. the way this game works is uh, we're going to ask you ten trivia questions, and if you can answer them in sixty seconds, you will win a thousand dollars. As simple as that. Now. Um, the timer will begin after I ask you the first question, and then if you get a question right, we're just going to move on to the next question so that we can try and get all these questions in in a, as quick amount of time as possible. Clear? Clear. Okay, great. Uh, you ready to go? We'll get started. I'm ready. All right. Generally, what color is grass? Green. Name a film in which actor Tom Cruise appeared. The Call of Money. What New York City experienced a mass shooting this past weekend? Buffalo. What lunar event took place on Sunday evening? Eclipse. 
Who defeated Mario Cuomo in the 1994 election for governor of New York? Uh, Pataki. What country was dissolved in 1991 with most of it reforming as the Commonwealth of Independent States? I don't know, United Arab Emirates. Uh, no, I'm sorry. The United Arab Emirates uh, still around. It was the Soviet Union or the USSR. Oh. <laughs> uh, but uh, it's not bad. You made it up to question six, which is not bad. Um, well, to, right. we're going to give you we're going to give you some swag uh, to hopefully make your your flights delay a little bit more palatable. I'm going to put you on hold and give Philippe your information. We'll send you something nice. Okay. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you, uh, Keith. Appreciate it. Thank you. So uh, if you want to check out one of the items that Keith is about to get, go to the WABC Radio Store. You can go there at WABCRadioStore.com. And if uh, you can search whatever whoever your favorite personality is, or better yet, get something from the whole station or get, you know, from multiple different personalities. They have a lot of cool stuff on there. I have been going crazy buying stuff from that WABC Radio Store. I've now bought a jacket. Multiple other side of midnight shirts, multiple Frank Morano hats, multiple mugs, and you know it's funny. I got a mug. I shouldn't say this, but I will. I got my first item the other day because I'm buying these. I'm paying for these. I got my first item the other day that I wasn't crazy about. It's still kind of cool, but it's all the other stuff that I've gotten is really great. And so what I got was. The mug, there's a few different types of mugs that you can buy, but I got the mug that has the alien on it, and he's holding a flag that says the other side of Midnight with Frank Moreno. And there's a shirt like that, too, and I have the shirt, and it's great. But my problem with this mug is you see the alien, you see the flag, but you can't make out what he's holding. You can't make out what the flag says. The font on the flag, see, is too small. So you really can't see that it's you don't you think it's just an alien mug hold doing the peace sign. You can't necessarily tell that he's got a flag that he's planting on another planet that says other side of midnight with Frank Moreno. It's cool. I like the concept, you know, because it reminds me in some ways of those old Marvin the Martian bits. You remember when Marvin the Martian used to go to whatever planet and claim it in the name of Mars? And that's what that mug reminds me of. But I can't really make out the font, at least on the mug that I have. But I'll tell you, I've gotten, I think, 10 or 11 items so far. All great. If there's one item that's a little, you know, lacking, so be it. But check it out, WABCRadioStore.com. And uh, you can just search my last name. And uh, if you use the promo code Frank15 on whatever you order, you will get a 15% discount. So uh, that's pretty neat, I think. Uh, Just a reminder, on Thursday night, I am going to be at this this fundraiser for this group called Lyrics for Lucas, where um, it's a a group that's designed to... uh, investigate SUDSI, Sudden Unexplained Death uh, in Children. It's basically the next thing above Sudden Infant Death Syndrome. And um, if you uh, go to lyricsforlucas.org, that's lyricsforlucas.org, they um, they have some of the information on Thursday's event. But I'm going to be there, 
and uh, you can come too. I think it's from 16, 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. It's a cigar and cocktail event here in uh, Manhattan, and it's uh, $250 a ticket, so I'm going to be there. And I'll mention also on the charitable front, um, my brother and sister are running in the New York City Marathon to raise money for EB. And if you want to make a contribution to their efforts, uh, I have the link to that on my Facebook page as well at facebook.com slash M-O-R-A-N-O fan. So check that out. Uh, hey, you know, speaking of Moranos, if you go to my Facebook page, you'll see a, a very handsome picture of my son Carmine. But there's always somebody that's got to have a problem, right? N- nobody can ever just click a lot. I mean, it's my own fault for inviting public scrutiny of my private life. But here's the caption that I put on this photo of my son and me. I said, and it's him in a bow tie, right? And you could see it, facebook.com slash fan. The kid isn't even six months old and can already tie a bow tie better than his old man. Impressive. Hashtag prodigy. Now, it's meant to just be cute. You know, it's that's it. And sure enough, one of the people commenting says, beautiful cutie. That's nice. Please don't use the term kid. No, please don't use the term the kid. Say my son. Now, isn't that a little bit much? I mean, who's really offended by me using the term the kid to refer to his ability to tie a bow tie? I got news for you. He didn't really tie that bow tie himself. So if that's your problem with the caption, I can't help you. Nothing wrong with the kid. It's said lovingly. Love my son. What would be wrong with the kid? I don't know. Like Billy the Kid? I, I don't understand. Like, <laughs> of all the things that I do that people can have a problem with, why people would pick that? I don't understand it at all. At all. Uh, all right. 800-848-WABC if you want to comment on uh, anything that we've covered. So I got to say, the Supreme Court made a, as far as I'm concerned, an awful decision yesterday. Um well, the ruling came, they may have made it previously, but the, the decision was published yesterday. Um, they ruled six to three. And I almost can't I, I, I want to say I can't believe this, but I can't. So they have boosted high dollar donors ability to personally enrich candidates, including wealthy ones that pour millions into their own campaigns. Um, so the court ruling yesterday is a decision that obliterates some of the campaign finance restrictions that were instituted post-Watergate and were passed by Congress. Now, when that means they're passed by Congress... They're passed by democratically elected officials, elected by the people. And this rule has now been obliterated by six unelected judges. So this six to three ruling struck down rules limiting candidates from raising funds after their election to repay money they loaned themselves. So now, because of what the Supreme Court did, wealthy candidates... Can, will who lend themselves millions of dollars 
to their campaigns in order to secure public public office can then go to their top donors for sums that could reach millions to pay themselves back. And so they can seek contributions to repay themselves and then deposit the money directly into their personal bank accounts. Now, this is crazy. I mean, we can have an argument about whether or not this is wise policy or whether it's not. But you know who already had that argument? Congress. Who is the Supreme Court to all of a sudden say Congress, in spite of what the people voted for, you don't know what you're talking about. Uh, We want to make sure that somebody that lends themselves $12 million can then go to their donors and get repaid $12 million to put in their own pocket. So right now, the, the way the law was until the Supreme Court ruling was you were capped at $250,000, repaying yourself back $250,000. Anything after that? No. It's considered a campaign expenditure that you've made. There's no limit on what you can spend on your own campaign. But in today's U.S. Senate primary in Pennsylvania, for example, you have Dr. Oz, who's loaned himself $12 million. Now, nothing against Dr. Oz. But that means that Dr. Oz is a super wealthy guy, and it's great that he's in a position to lend himself $12 million, lend his campaign, I should say, $12 million. So that means he can get elected in part by lending himself $12 million, and then once he's elected, because everybody wants to give money to a winner, um, he can then reach out to all these top donors and pay himself back. I don't think that's right. I mean, if it is right, that should be a law that's changed by Congress. But for the Supreme Court, under the guise of, I don't know, what it, I didn't read the, the whole opinion, but uh, presumably under the guise of the First Amendment, to say that um, Congress doesn't know what it's talking about in limiting how much wealthy candidates can pay themselves back and stick this millions of dollars in their pocket, I don't think that's right. David McCormick, who's also running in Pennsylvania today, he has loaned $11 million to his own campaign, and he'll be in the same position. Carla Sands, also running today, she has uh, loaned herself $3.9 million. What was wrong with just letting folks be capped at $250,000? No one's forcing you to lend your campaign money. Nobody. How about if it's over $250,000? No, you're not putting that money back into your pocket once you win this election. Instead, you've spent it on your campaign. But whatever. That's why I'm not on the Supreme Court, I guess. 800-848-WABC. That's uh, 800-848-9222. Oh, what I was going to say about my son Carmine, and then I get distracted by this Facebook comment taking umbrage with me using the word the kid. Um. We got these magnets made for Carmine's christening as a kind of a party favor. But they didn't arrive in time for the party. So we said, all right, well, we'll include them when we send out thank you notes. We'll stick Carmine's magnet face in there. And I uh, I thought, you know, that was a good idea. So that's what we've been doing. But now we have a surplus. We have some extras. We have about 15 magnets. And so my wife and I were talking about what we should do with these magnets. So I said, why don't we give them to the people 
who were almost invited to the christening. People like uh, Curtis Sliwa and Sid Rosenberg and uh, others, who came, John Tobacco, who came just shy of being invited to the christening. This way, just like the people that play the $1,000 Minute that get the consolation prize, will send them a um, consolation prize magnet. This way, even though they didn't get invited to the party, at least maybe they'll feel better about not being invited by getting the magnet. And then my wife said, well, you know, maybe that will make people feel worse. That'll remind them that they weren't invited. So I said, all right, why don't we take it on a case-by-case basis? Like Curtis clearly won't be offended that he gets a magnet as a consolation prize, but somebody else might. You know, some of my second cousins that didn't make the cut, for instance. So that's uh, the direction I think we're going. All right, 800-848-WABC. Mike is in Pennsylvania. Hello, Mike. Hey, how you doing there, Frank? What you call it? Uh, uh, As far as the kid's concerned, everybody in New York pretty much calls people kid, you know. I call grown-ups kid. Right. Defended by it. So she must live in New Hampshire or something. Second of all, uh, you know, the quiz that you had, I mean, I don't know who the hell would know that last question. That reminds me of time I, you know, when I hear your quiz sometimes, Reminds me of the time with this She told us she was going to give us a pop quiz. One question, you get it right, you're off on Monday. Went in, we studied, went home, studied, studied. She came, you know, next day, get ready for the quiz. She asked, how many drops of water in Atlantic? And everybody put their pens away, crazy? God, don't even know that. Well, we'll do it again. She asked another stupid question. The next day, how much? How many grains of sand in Sahara Desert? What do you, he knows that. Mike, you're breaking up a little bit, but I, I think I get your point. But I don't, I, I don't accept your metaphor at all because those are impossible to know. I think almost everybody knows what country was dissolved in 1991. Well, I'm very, very surprised. I, I, I didn't. I'm pretty, pretty much up on you know. You, you didn't know that the, the Soviet Union was dissolved in 1991. You had no idea. I knew it was dissolved, but I didn't know they, they called it seats or whatever, but you said. You understand right. what I mean? Right. I know when it got dissolved, but, you know, thank God for Ronald Reagan and all. Right. Well, again, I, I think uh, there are a lot of factors, certainly. But, um, you know, the, desolu- the dissolution of the Soviet Union was a pretty big deal. So I, I don't think that that was an impossibly difficult question at all. At all. In fact, I was concerned it was too easy. With that extra hint, with most of it reforming as the Commonwealth of Independent States, I don't think that was an impossible question. How many grains of sand? That's a different story. All right, we'll do uh, 15 seconds of fame next if you want to be heard for uh, 15 seconds on any subject. I want to remind you, I'm going to be back at 6 a.m. with John Katsimatidis as we fill in collectively on the Bernie and Sid show. Um, you could check, tune in from 6 a.m. to 10 a.m. All right. Um, 1-800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. Straight ahead. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC.
This is indeed the other side of midnight as you hear Stevie G singing there. And uh, as we close each and every show, we will do so by giving you an opportunity to be heard for 15 seconds. Uh, That's right, at 800-848-9222. It is time for... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Ray is in Woodhaven. Two don't miss movies. House and Games starring Joe Mantegna and The Apostle starring Robert Duvall. Frankie in Glendale. The shooting in Buffalo. There are too many people who have too much hate in their hearts. Jesus said to us, he gave us commandment, love one another as I have loved you. It wasn't a suggestion. Chris and the Catskills. Lee Zeldin is carrying independent petitions to create his own line to be on the ballot in November, whether he wins the GOP primary or not. Pat Ryan versus Colin Smith in House 18. Mark Molinaro versus Josh Riley in House 19. No special election for Mark Molinaro. Henry in Manhattan. Uh, The question about the Soviet Union was easy, don't worry. But the most flagrant uh, user of loaning to yourself... And then getting paid back, I think, was our our last president, Donald J. Trump. Anthony in Edison. Uh, yes, good morning. I find it very strange in this day of high tech and technology that we can't find this leaker for the Supreme Court, but yet some homicides in the hoods are, are solved in 48 hours. Unbelievable. Evelyn in Bayonne. Frank, I just emailed you about it. The song you just played, Stevie, um, I can actually hear Stevie Nicks singing that. With a little bit of tweaking. I like that. That's good. Jimmy in the Bronx. Sins a moron, sins a moron, sins a moron. Lucy in the Bronx. A kid is a baby goat. And remember, Kurt used to call you produced his show. Lucy, your, your phone is breaking up there. Charlie in East Village. Remember Susan Lucci, the soap opera actress, Frank? Oh, absolutely. another Susan Lucci right up your alley in New York. Do you know what she does? No. She's the head groundskeeper at City Field, and she has her hands full today after the storm. Get her on your great show, Frank. I will, actually. That's a great idea. Mike on Staten Island. Hey, listen, uh, Frank, uh, kid's okay for the little guy. Uh, two things Philadelphia does not have. The Woodside Cheesesteak and Dino and Son. Love it. Thank you, Mike. Hey, I'll be back at 6 a.m. with John Katsimatidis on the Bernie and Sid Show. Frank Moreno, good day.